We're going to get rolling a bit early here tonight. We have got a long and busy hour, my friends. Good evening and welcome to the first of a very special two-part installment of Life, Liberty, and All That Jazz. I'm your host and commentator, but I won't be commentating too much tonight. I am Jeffrey Bennett. You're listening to this program live on this fourth day of April. 2011, right here on RBN, Republic Broadcasting Network, a marvelous simulcast broadcast between Phoenix, Arizona, Round Rock, Texas, and Argentina. Roger Sales, welcome back to Perspectives on America. Thank you, Jeff. I couldn't be any more happy to be here. I know there's been a lot of people that have been anxious to hear this information. Uh, you've waited a week. Uh, I've waited 18 years to give it to you. Uh, and I did a little post-napkin uh, scribbling here, and that comes out to about 936 weeks. So if you want to multiply the anxiety level, you can get some idea. <laughs> uh, the first thing I think is uh, uh, to open with a prayer because this is a, a solemn moment for me and I think for the American people and people all over that are listening to this because you're going to get some real answers tonight. Uh, and I'd like to thank God for giving me this information and having the two men that taught it to me that have been so inspirational to me that crossed my path. And Jesus told us that he's the way, the truth, and the light. This is the way to the truth. And I'm going to show you the light. And my prayer would be tonight that he give me the thoughts and that I'm able to put them into words and that those words will fall on his people and tickle their ears and that they will see his face and help us spread this message because this is the message of freedom. Okay, So that out of the way. Uh, let's start with, uh, since we started with a prayer, let's start with some biblical background here. I want to give credit to these two little tidbits to Pastor Pete Peters, who I used to be an avid listener to, and picked up these little pieces of the puzzle out of his sermons from different times. And the first one is from John. I'm not sure the exact uh, chapter and verse, but I'll give you the quote, and some of you biblical people can look it up. And it says, A double-minded man is uncertain in all of his ways. Let me repeat that. A double-minded man is uncertain in all of his ways. And that is what they've done to all of us. And tonight, I'm going to try and untie those knots because I'm going to go into a second here what I think their, their process is. And what they've literally done is tied your mind in knots. I'm going to give you another little story that I heard out of one of Pastor Pete's sermons one night. And I can't give you the book. I know it's an Old Testament story. And he was telling this story in reference to a sermon. And he was talking about the Canaanites or the Malachites or one of the old tribes, warring tribes in the Old Testament, wanted to go over and defeat their neighbors. And they worshipped Baal. And so they got a hold of Baal, and Baal was walking with them down the road, and they said, we want to defeat our enemy, the whoever they are. How do we do it? And he said, trick them with words. And that's exactly what they've done. They've tricked the American people with words, and they've tied your mind in knots. And that's why nobody has been able to really figure out what we're going to go over in the next two broadcasts here. 
and I'm going to explain to you at least what, and I'll tell you what's fact, and I'll tell you what's my opinion. This is my opinion, because I've thought about this for many years. If you go back and look at the difference in the subconscious and the conscious mind, the subconscious mind carries a great much more information. That's the part of your brain that regulates your body. It tells every cell what it's supposed to do, when it's supposed to do it, and it reacts quicker than the conscious mind, which carries a lot less information, which is the one we run on. So I think that they're playing the differential in reaction time between your subconscious mind and your conscious mind. And I'm going to give you a perfect example, and I think it's one that everybody can, uh, can relate to. And that's a word, gay. Okay, which for the entire history has always had a very positive connotation of light, happy, and breezy. As they have pushed their agenda forward, and homosexuality is certainly one of the planks of their agenda to destroy the family, uh, is they've taken that word with a positive connotation, and they've attached it to something that most of us find pretty morally repugnant. And now if you turn on TV, which I haven't watched in years, or, or listen to any kind of regular network, establishment broadcast, gay, 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 gay. And what they're doing with that word is they're sending that word into your subconscious, and your subconscious is taking something that has always revolted most people, and it's sugarcoating it with a positive connotation that then affects your conscious mind. I don't know that for a fact. That's a theory I've got. But it certainly works into the things we're going to cover here tonight. So that's just a little bit of, of background. So now that we've gone to the Bible and we We've dealt in a little psychology. We're all going to try and jump back into our second childhood. And in doing that, I'd like to read a little verse out of Alice in Wonderland. And I want to give you credit where I found this. I took a paralegal school when I was fighting the federalities at one point years ago. And part of that class for six or eight months, whatever it was, was on legal research. Pretty important topic. We used a book from Nolo Press, which if I remember right is from the University of California at Berkeley. They put out a lot of self-help uh, legal books, how to declare bankruptcy and all that kind of stuff. And this was in the front page of the Nolo Press legal research book straight from Alice in Wonderland and it says when I use a word Humpty Dumpty said in a rather scornful tone it means just what I choose it to mean no more no less the question is said Alice whether you can make a word mean so many different things the question is said Humpty Dumpty which is to be master that's all I wonder, I wonder if anybody has ever read that, that caught that. Now, what's the background on Alice in Wonderland? Alice in Wonderland was written by Lewis Carroll. That's a pen name. Lewis Carroll had a very close friend that was a teacher at Oxford University in England who was also a painter. And he would come over to Lewis Carroll's house at least once a week, maybe twice a week. You can go read this in Wikipedia yourself. Uh, and he would teach uh, Lewis Carroll's two daughters uh, watercolor painting. This teacher's name was a guy named John Ruskin. Now, that name's probably not going to ring a bell with very many of you. It's been lost in the dustbin of history. But John Ruskin was a professor at Oxford. And one of his students went on to be a pretty famous and wealthy guy. And his name was Cecil Rhodes. And John Ruskin is the one that was responsible for teaching Cecil Rhodes the philosophy of recapturing the English Empire around the world that they had lost. 
Cecil Rhodes went on to go to South Africa and literally controlled the richest mineral rights in the world. They had a country named after him. The broadcaster that used to have this slot before he hiatused back there to South Africa was from that country. It was called Rhodesia. He also, and, and this is a little insight into the way these people do things, he also founded, uh, still today, I guess the biggest diamond mine in the world. And it's called De Beers. And the reason it's called De Beers is because the De Beers family owned that land and he went in and bought it from them when they didn't know what they had, so he named his diamond mine after them. Right. So these are the kind of people that we're talking about here. Uh, also, if you go to that Wikipedia page, it's pretty interesting. There's a big statue somewhere in Central Park. I've never seen it. There's a picture of it there of a big toadstool. And sitting on it is the Mad Hatter and Alice and a whole cast of characters right there in bronze. Now, I don't know. I've never taken the time to research it. But I would just about bet you everything that I own that that statue was donated by the Rockefellers or one of their foundations. And just like everything else that they do and everything else that we're going to cover over in the next couple of nights, it's hidden in plain sight. Okay? How they do it? Um, well, I'm going to I'm going to teach you how they do it. I'm going to teach you what they do, and, and I'm going to and I think I'm going to explain to you pretty adequately why even the people that we really really respect that are pinnacle pinnacle people in our movement, people like Edward Vieira and Judge Napolitano, and people like that don't even understand the information that I'm going to expose to you in the next couple of broadcasts, and it's powerful. Okay. Uh, the first thing I want to talk about is the science of law. Now, when I've mentioned that to people in the past, I've had them scoff and say, ah, lawyers, a bunch of lawyers and marbles in their mouth and words mean different things. But if you go back and think about it, law truly is a science. Because if you're going to get into these legal battles where uh, billions, billions, whatever rides on it, you've got to know the exact meaning of the words that are being used. And you've got to know what definitions are being imputed into those words. So when you're talking about exactness, exactness is a science. Uh, the science of mathematics, 2 plus 2 always equals 4. The science of biology and how the human chromosome splits and reproduces. Those are all exact and they're, and they're duplicatable. And that's what makes law a science, although most of us have never even really looked at it but to, to, that way. But to tell you that having the exact definitions and the meanings of these words is imperative to your freedom because that's how you've been enslaved. Okay. So as we get into the talk, I had a couple of things that, that I used to do a bit of public speaking. I used to give this uh, presentation for years in Atlanta. Never could get very many people to listen. I had 11 attorneys go through it, by the way, when I was giving it. Uh, uh, not one of them had ever been exposed to the information. Every one of them went back and did legal research, and not one of them ever contradicted one thing that was presented to them. Now, the little three-hour presentation that we used to give was a prelude to a 30-hour uh, entire intense weekend uh, legal course in much more depth. And uh, uh, in that national course, we had over 30 attorneys that went through that long weekend course. And one of them from Salt Lake City, I don't even know his name, but he'd practiced over 30 years. And when he got out of that course on Sunday, he went home, he was so disgusted, he ripped up his bar card, and he retired. 
So that's the power of the information you're going to get presented to you over the next couple of nights. So the first two things I'd like to say is, uh, uh, you know, a good a good speaker, they say, tells you what he's going to tell you, tells you what he's going to tell you, and then tells you what he told you. And I'm going to do that tonight. And the other thing that I really liked about, uh, uh, that I heard about speaking was a good, a good talk uh, is about like a woman's skirt. It's long enough to cover the subject matter, but it's short enough to make things interesting. And that's what we're going to try and do tonight, is keep things in concise. I'm not going to get off on too much tangential stuff. You've got an affidavit on Jeff's website, uh, that, uh, and you need probably to give some of the listeners uh, that don't go to your site or don't know about it that are new, uh, you need to give them that address, Jeff. Uh, and you can go pull up that affidavit tonight, and you can read it uh, uh, on your own. We'll cover a bit of it, but there's some things you're just going to have to do for yourself. Okay. They can find the website, Republic Trading GroupInternational.com. Uh, and what you don't know, Roger, is I think the importance of all of this is I'm going to be putting together a special segment on the site where all of this information can be archived, and they'll be able to go there at any time. Fantastic. Uh, now we're going to jump back in history a couple of thousand years, and we're going to go to a Chinese general named Sun Tzu. When I first got into this, I had no idea who this guy was, and I was raised in a military family. Okay, uh, Many of you don't know who he is, but I can promise you this. Every conqueror in the history of the world since him has read his book and followed his protocols. And the one thing I'm going to tell you about Sun Tzu was one of his final statements. And he said, if you don't know your enemy and you don't know yourself, you have no chance of winning any battle. And I guarantee you, we don't know our enemy, and most of us don't know ourselves either. All right, And we're going to shed some light on them tonight and in the next couple of nights because the information that you're going to receive is, I think, after all the years of thought and study I've put into this, their deepest, deepest darkest secret. And I'm going to tell you why I say that. Because to be able to carry on the agenda that they're prosecuting today all over the world, they had to literally take over the United States of America because the United States was a uh, one of the only free countries in the history of the world where men received God-given rights. And they had to come in and squash that because as, as uh, Prime Minister Gladstone made a speech in Parliament uh, in England, he said, if we don't do something about the colonies in this country, they threaten every monarchy on the face of the globe. So they knew full well the implications of our country and its founding principles. And they also had to come in there and teach a bunch of free men who were very studied because they studied Blackstone's commentaries. And they, it was the second most read book in the colonies behind the Bible. And they knew the common law inside and out. And the king couldn't pull anything over on them. And so they had to come in and take this country and turn you into a whole herd of sheeple that they could then fatten up through materialism which they've done with their monetary tricks and take you to the slaughter. First of all because you're industrious and because you had all these freedoms and ethics and morals and secondly because they had to destroy you and they wanted to use the U.S. as a platform for all this research and development and all this militarism. They wanted to use the U.S. as a platform for all this research and development and all this militarism and all this monetarism that they've exported all over the world with their chicanery 
And they had to take down the country. And it's my thesis that what you're going to learn is their deepest, darkest secret, because even people like Edwin Vieira and Judge Napolitano don't know what you're going to know after these two broadcasts. And I think it's a very, very important point. Okay? Uh, and, and it is no coincidence, as we all know there's no coincidences out there, that, uh, back to Sun Tzu, that the Mossad's motto is, by way of deception, we shall make war. Because that was Sun Tzu. That's classic Sun Tzu. If you're strong here, make them think you're weak there. If your enemy's over there, make him think you're here. If you're this, make him think you're that. Everything is deception. And it's all in your mind. And they've tied your mind in knots. And I'm going to do my dead level best to teach you how to untie them, to teach you how to regain your, your freedom because there's a remedy in this. And for all of you to be torchbearers and carry this message forward. Because the subject matter we're going to cover in the next two nights is going to give these people some major, major problems. It is no coincidence, again, that six months after teaching this information, that my two mentors were raided in Las Vegas, Nevada, with 27 armed special agents from the IRS with M16s, held them at gunpoint for eight hours, would not even let them go to the bathroom, and they left with all the files, all the computers, and everything else they could carry. Okay? Now, they don't do that kind of stuff if you're not a threat to them. If you're not a threat to them, like Phil Marsh, some of you old-timers will remember Phil Marsh, they let Phil Marsh go for five years out there teaching his untaxing tactics. Because what they do is they let you go, and they just like a fisherman with a net. They let all the fish come into the net, and then they go and bust Phil Marsh, and they get all of the suspects in, in his files. But it's the people that have the goods that they want to squash the knowledge. And that's exactly what happened to us. Uh, uh, and thank goodness both of those boys are out of federal prison. So we touched on the, uh, the passport application last week for a minute. I was doing a little bit of additional study because I'm doing a little bit of additional writing for, for an offering of this that we're going to offer you folks. And, and in, Now I have here, not the one online, I have in my hand the hard copy that anybody can go pick up at the post office. Okay, And there's two copies there. One of them is an original application, and one of them is an application for passport renewal. And right on, this is the orange, uh, that's the original one, and this one's a little bit dated. It's from back in about 1996 or so. And uh, right at the top, it says, U.S. passports, in bold letters, U.S. passports are issued only to U.S. citizens or non-citizen nationals. Each person must obtain his or her own passport. I heard on a radio show one time that only about 15% of the people in the country have passports. I'll bet you that a bunch of this listening audience has one before too long, and we'll go into that more. I want to read you another little part here. This is in the instruction part. It's under the paperwork reduction statement part, and it says, you're not required to provide the information requested on this form unless the form displays a current valid OMB, that's Office of Management and Budget, number. We try to create forms and instructions that can be easily understood. Get this next sentence. Often, this is difficult to do because our citizenship laws are very complex. Anybody ever tell you the citizenship laws were complex, Jeff? Yeah, they did. 
Well, they told you right here. Well, I read this to one of my mentors today, and he said, yes, they're so complex that when you try and go out and teach the people how complex they are, they send you to federal prison. <laughs> so, <laughs> which is exactly what happened to those guys, and uh, God bless them. Okay? So let's get a little bit into law here. I'm going to give you some, some, some background so that you'll understand we'll all be on the same page. And if you don't have a pen and paper right there, I want you to do this in your mind's eye. All right? So you can just, I'm going to give you a formula. And the formula is simple. It's R plus D equals R. Now that's the formula of the law. And what that means is rights plus duties equal remedies. Okay? So you're given rights and you're given certain duties. Maybe other people are given duties, but they're correlative. They're together. You never just get rights. You've always got duties associated with the rights. And if you get a right trampled on or somebody doesn't uphold a duty, there's a remedy. So right there is your whole formula for the law. R plus D equals R. That's very important. There's a reason that that's the first thing we covered. Okay, And what we're going to do now is go into a few words, and we're going to cover legal definitions, because we're not going to do too many of them, but the ones we're going to cover are real important. And the first one is property. Now, when I say property, I'm going to probably bounce some questions off you, Jeff, just rhetorically, okay, so I don't feel right. like I'm sitting here talking to myself. You're so not. when I say property, and youth automatically think, well, is that car out in front of your house your property? Well, of course I would think it is. I've paid for it. Okay. Well, certainly in a colloquial way, that is correct, because that's the way we use that word. But in a technical way, in the science of law, property is a right. Okay? And in the law, the car is called a thing. And your property is the right in and to control and ownership of the thing. Okay, does that make sense? Yes, if I was to, where I where I lived in Atlanta, if I was to drive to Hartsfield International, you know, in Atlanta they used to say if you're going to hell, you got to go through Hartsfield. Uh, if you were going to go out to Hartsfield and park my car out there in one of those lots, and I was going to take a plane up to New York City, and I was going to meet somebody up there in New York in the bar at LaGuardia or one of the airports, and I could take that title in my car in my pocket, and we'd meet over a drink, and I'd sign that title over to them, and now they. They've got rights into the property, even though the car is all the way back in Hartsfield. Okay? So do you see what we're talking about here? It's, it's an important concept to understand. A property right is the right of ownership and control in and to the thing. It is the only way a property right to a thing can be exercised is through a person. So is the, is the, is the property thing clear? It's not necessarily the thing in law. It's the right of ownership and control in and to the thing. You with me? It, it, makes, it makes sense. Okay. Well, now we're going to talk about the other one that we ended that on, which is person. So when we say person, and you see person somewhere in a regulation or a statute, what are you talking about? You know, if you go back to business law, uh, back when you were in college or high school, if you took that, and they'd say they had a real easy definition of, per of corporation. They'd say a corporation can do anything a person can do. 
Okay, because here, here this is this is important. I should go uh, uh, the in a in a corporation, the rights and the duties are separated. You see, the corporation has the rights, but if the corporation uh, tramples on on your duties, then you can't put the corporation in jail. You can fine it. But who do you go after if you go after a corporation? You go after the board of directors. It's the board of directors that have the duty. Okay. So in a juristic person, which a corporation is called, the rights and the duties are separate. All right. And if we're talking about a real flesh and blood person, we call that an individual. And you'll see that in law sometimes. And the reason they call it an individual is because rights and duties are contained in the same entity. And the word individual comes from the word indivisible because you contain both rights and duties. All right. So uh, a person is an entity to which the law ascribes rights and duties. A law dictionaries, or many dictionaries today, if you go look up the word person, you're going to see what a person is. You're going to see it's a corporation, a partnership, a this or that or the other. They're not going to go back and teach you this. It's an entity to whom the law ascribes rights and duties. And I'm going to tell you a story. Because my mentor, a guy named John, lives up in Salt Lake City, as he was doing all this investigation into this stuff, and he's been studying law since he was a kid just because he loved it, all right? And, and he called the University of Utah Law School, and he got the dean of the law school on the line, and he's talking about this concept of person. And he said, uh, what, what course do you teach that in? And he said, we teach it in a course called jurisprudence. And he said, it's an elective course. And John said, oh, really? So when was the last time you taught it? He said, six years ago. We only get into, we only teach the course when we get enough people volunteering that want to take it. So yes. what does it take? Four years to get through law school? I guess Is that so. right? I well, there's guessed. a whole, a couple of classes that went through law school that never got exposed to the legal concept of person. And all laws are written for persons. Think that might be important? This is what the, uh, this is what the Black's Law Dictionary definition of person is. This is pretty revealing. The scope and delineation of the term is necessary for determining those to whom the 14th Amendment of the Constitution affords protection since this amendment expressly applies to persons. It is a concept that as we go forward, is ultra important to understand. So as we get this stuff up and people can go back and listen to it, I know a lot of this is going to go over people's heads. Okay. Well, they're going to have to wait until we come. You're going to have to wait till we come back from the break. Roger Sales okay. is our special guest and speaker tonight. Stay with us. We will be right back. Oh, we're going to make it the sunny side of the street because it's time you get exposed to the darkness. Welcome back to tonight's Life, Liberty, and all that jazz. Our special guest uh, and commentator, really, I'm turning this program over to him because what he's got to say is far more important than any babble I could give you. So let's go back to Roger Sales. Thanks once again for being with us, bud. Hey, that's my pleasure, buddy. And, yeah, we're going to try and ride, uh, walk on the lit side of the street. It's that's sunny it. over there. Uh, the next word we're going to cover is probably the most dangerous word in the English language, and that is resident. 
resident this, resident this, are you a resident that, what's your legal residence, Is what's your, where's your, your residence that you reside, okay? So we take, once again, just like property here, most of us think that that means where you live, and certainly that's a colloquial definition that's imputed to that word by virtually everyone. But we've got several other types of definitions for that word, and one of them is a legal definition. The first one's geographical, in or at living in some place for a, for a length of time. The other one is political, and it says living in some place for the receipt of a benefit and the discharge of a duty. Now, that's like the, the resident in medical school, because we all know a guy goes through pre-med, he goes through four years of medical school, and he goes into his residency. And that's where you go to the hospital for about an hour a day, and, and you look at a couple of patients, and you go out and play golf and make about sixty, eighty, a 100000 a year, right? No, not right. That resident stays at that hospital. Sometimes he doesn't even get out for two or three days, and he probably sleeps on a couch when he's lucky enough to get some sleep. And that's the discharge of a, uh, for the receipt of a benefit, the discharge of a duty. Now, there's even a further definition of resident that's not listed in your dictionaries, and that comes from ministerial law. That's ambassadorial law. And that means a, a, an ambassador in residence. And, you know, these countries do contracts and agreements and treaties on exchanging ambassadors and stuff. So let's use an example. I think Jeff stepped away, so I can't use him as a sounding board. But let's use an example of, since I'm in Argentina, let's say that the Argentine ambassador flies up there to D.C., and when he's going through Dulles Airport up there, they found, a, 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 a let's say, a kilo of cocaine in his, uh, in his diplomatic pouch. Are they going to arrest him on the spot and try him under American law for possession of a narcotic, illegal substance? No. They're going to send him back to Argentina, and hopefully the laws there, here in Argentina, will prosecute him. Why? Because he's a resident. And that means that another country's or area's laws apply to him. And this is the meaning that's imputed every time they ask you the question in any kind of legal capacity, are you a resident? And that is one of the biggest landmines in the English language. And we're going to get into that because the first place in the Constitution that the term and the word resident is used is the last word in the first clause of the 14th Amendment and the state wherein they reside. So the next one we're going to talk about leads to jurisdiction. And the word we're going to define and talk about is allegiance. And allegiance is nothing but another word for jurisdiction. The first rule of government, and this is from a law case called U.S. versus Wong Kim Ark, is allegiance for protection and protection from allegiance. The word and that definition actually comes from the feudal era, and before that a little touch of Roman law. Another way of saying benefits and duties. Allegiance for protection, protection for allegiance. If you look at the word jurisdiction in Black's Law Dictionary, the Black's Law Dictionary definition of jurisdiction is the state of the forum. Okay. The next one we're going to talk about is the word subject. Now, England has subjects, and England has a monarchy, a king. 
I'm going to read you a short excerpt from that very same case, U.S. versus Wong Kim Ark. This is a case from the 1890s. All right. This particular quote I'm going to read you is from page 469. If you're a legal beagle and you want to get the sites, it's listed on the affidavit there on Jeff's website. And uh, uh, I'm, I'm going to tell you that you may, from those of you who have been real astute, you may have heard of this case. Or it may ring a bell with you. U.S. versus Wong Kim Ark is the case that every one of the Obama birthers have used because it is the pinnacle case in the entire history of the United States Supreme Court that covers citizenship, denizenship, how you get your citizenship, and all of that stuff. And that's why all those people have been using it in this Obama struggle on his birth certificate. So let me go into what it says in Wong Kim Ark about the word subject. And it says, this is a quote, the only adjudication that has been made by this court upon the meaning of the clause and subject to the jurisdiction thereof in the leading provision of the 14th Amendment is a case called Elk versus Wilkins, where it was decided that decision was placed on the grounds that the meaning of those words was not merely subject in some respect or degree to the jurisdiction of the United States, but completely subject to their political jurisdiction and owing them direct and immediate allegiance. So, the term in the 14th Amendment, and subject to the jurisdiction thereof, means not merely subject in some respect or degree to the jurisdiction of the United States, but completely subject to their political jurisdiction and owing them immediate allegiance. What did we say? Allegiance for protection, protection for allegiance. Another way of saying rights and duties. They give you rights, you owe them duties. The next thing we want to talk about is slavery. There's several variations of slavery. You know, our establishment media and our controllers go to an awful lot of trouble to make you think that the only slavery in the world was black slavery in the United States. And that's not true. Okay? There's been slavery since the beginning of time. Man has always wanted to enslave his fellow man. You've got Spanish peonage. You've got Chinese coolies. You've got the black slavery that we all know about only too well. And then you've got the European variety of slavery. And it was called the feudal era. And those people were called serfs. And there was two types of serfs. There was involuntary serfs that were born into, in, into slavery, or serfdom, if you will. And there's voluntary serfs. Now, if you go back, and, and those of you who are Monty Python fans will remember one of his movies was called The Holy Grail, In Search of the Holy Grail. And in that movie, they had an oath of fealty. And that's how someone would volunteer into slavery in the feudal era. When you'd volunteer, let's say the guy's in happy old London, he's got a nice family, the economy gets bad, he can't make it, so he's got to go out to one of the feudal, uh, feudal lords and say, I want to be your serf. Well, if he volunteered into it, they would go through this ceremony called an oath of fealty. And what they'd do is they'd get the lord of the manor there, and the guy that was volunteering into, into, into slavery, which is exactly what it is, would, would have all of the other serfs 
or at least enough of them around to witness the ceremony, and he would swear allegiance to that Lord for his body and all of his worldly goods. So he literally swore an oath of himself into slavery. Now the good thing for him was that when the economy got better down in jolly old London, he could volunteer out and go back into his old job. Uh, and the witnesses around witnessed that ceremony. And when he did that, he literally put himself in a position of slavery where that Lord owned his body and his worldly goods. And the contract, because it was a contract, was that he would give him a certain amount of land for him to till and oversee, and that the Lord of the manor would have an agreed-on percentage of whatever output that was. But you see, to be able to take that output legally, they had to own him. And the reason for that was, we'll go back to another guy that's got a pretty good reputation and, and, and did quite a, a good body of work, and his name was Adam Smith. And Adam Smith was the founder of all economic theory. His book, The Wealth of Nations, was the wellhead for what we today call both Keynesian economics and Austrian economics. Most all economic thought in the world came from Adam Smith. And what Adam Smith said and I got this out of another Supreme Court case, by the way. It said a man has to own and control his labor because it's the only way that a poor man can, of his own initiative, change his status and raise himself up into another class from a lower class. Another really important concept to understand is that if you don't own your labor, somebody else does. And if they own your labor, they own your body. And if they own your body, you're a slave, Jack. I don't care what other color you color it or however you look at it. All right? We're talking where the rubber meets the road here. All right, simple so, math, Matt. Let me, allow me to ask a quick question here. Sure, simple sure. equation, if I'm understanding this, is that, in effect, if someone else owns your labor, they own you as... That, absolutely. In, which, in effect, is what our taxation system is about, correct? Or am I getting Well, ahead? how... Oh, man, you're transitioning right into my next point. <laughs> Thank you. This was not rehearsed, okay? So I must be doing a good job, all right? I used to have a theory when I was selling, and I was, I'd just sold most of my career, was it's easier to pull a rope than it is to push a rope. So evidently I'm pulling a rope pretty good tonight. All right. Uh, uh, that, the question I was going to ask next is, why do you think the IRS files a lien at the property office in the property roll books? Uh, you, you, think it, you think it might be because they consider you to be their property? Yeah, it's the only thing that makes sense to me. Okay, so if they file one of those bogus liens down there on you in the property thing, what about if you rent your house? Because they put your name down and they put the address down, don't they? Yes, but they, they can't come seize your house because you don't own it. But they can go in and steal your car. They can go in and garnish your wages. They can clean out your bank account. They can do all that stuff, can't they? Yeah. So when they file a lien on whatever address, whether you own the home or not, that lien's not on the house, is it? It's on you as an individual or a person or whatever the choice of words are. Well, let's use a real explicit one, as a slave. Okay. So those of you who say, and I heard Neil Bort say this one day, I used to live in Atlanta, I used to listen to that clown all the time, uh, uh, that, oh, we're in economic slavery. 
Let me tell you what, kids, you're not in economic slavery. You're in real, honest-to-goodness feudal slavery. And as we go through this program, I'm going to prove that to you beyond a shadow of a doubt. Okay? So, the next thing... Oh, by the way, while we're talking about words here, let's go into another one. How about terrorism? You heard that a lot the last few years, haven't we? Oh, boy, have we ever. Well, it's just like Rush Limbaugh used to say 20 years ago when he was first getting started. He had a campaign there for months, and he'd go, words mean things. Well, you know, Rush is right. Words mean things. All right? So if you want to go to terrorism and you want to look up the definition, what's the best dictionary in the world, Jeff? Black's Law. No. The best dictionary in the world is the Oxford English Dictionary. Oh, all right, all right. And if you go to the library, you'll see there's about 13, 14, hell, maybe 16 volumes there. It takes up a whole shelf. And the reason the Oxford Dictionary is considered the best dictionary in the world is every word they cover, they go into the entomology of a word. And you can go look up a word, and it'll give you a whole litany of every time that word's been used and where it came from in the important meanings and the origin of that word. So it's a very important resource. So if you go to Oxford English Dictionary and you look up terrorism, what do you think the first definition is, Jeff? I, I go keep going. I don't. I'm not sure. Intimidation by government. Ooh, that's As in the dictionary. They've not taken that out and hidden it. That's the, was the last time I saw one. They hadn't. Okay. Damn. I don't see too many of them down here, and the ones I do see, they're in Spanish. So you know, it's not exactly my forte yet. <laughs> So, terrorism is intimidation by government as set forth in the French Revolution. We should expand on that just a little bit. What do you think was the first example, the first Petri dish for these monsters that are trying to control the world? After they did the Illuminati in 1776 and Thomas Weiss coughed and the guy on the horse got hit with a bolt of lightning and some of the manuscripts got out, where was the first place they tried their little theories and ideas? The French Revolution. Okay. Let him eat cake. Yep, you let him eat cake. Now, by the way, you know that wasn't cake. Cake in that day meant the stuff that comes out of the inside of a uh, of a of a coal or a wood burning stove. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay. So uh, we'll go back to our definitions here. Uh, how's our time doing, Jeff? Well, we're, uh, we're okay. We've got uh, we've got about ten minutes. Okay, well, I've only covered, you know, a little over one page, so I guess we're doing good. <laughs> uh, the next one we'll cover is license. Okay? Uh, uh, and in Black's Law, again, judicial notice goes straight into evidence. License is described as permission to do that which is otherwise illegal. So, are you telling me that it's illegal to drive unless you have a license, right? Well, well that's, that's what Black's Law Dictionary says. That's what we've all learned. Uh, it's a, is it, was it illegal to get married for all these centuries without having a license? Nope. When did that stuff come along? I'm going to tell you where the history of that was. That, the, the marriage license was actually, the idea was fermented in the state of Virginia. And the reason they came up with that was because they had a law in Virginia which, dis, which made misogynist marriages illegal. That's marriage of a black and a white. And if a black and a white wanted to get married in, in Virginia, they had to go to the state and get a marriage license because otherwise it was illegal. And evidently somewhere along the line, the Rockefellers or some of these creeps thought that was a great idea, and they figured they'd put it on all you slaves out there. Okay? Hmm. you got to get a business license, don't you? Oh, yeah. 
All right. So all those licenses apply to things which should be a natural right from God, but now you've got to go apply for them and ask for them for the government because it's illegal. Why do you think that might be? Well, you don't think because... it might be because they don't own you and control you, and you've got to go ask permission, do you? Uh, well, it's that, and it's also revenue income. It's, it's income for them. It's revenue. You know, what we've learned over the years is these guys never do one thing that doesn't accomplish multiple objectives. They're real good at that. Okay. So, now let's go back and let's study a little bit in specifics about the feudal era and the feudal structure. And this is very important. Okay. It's the English or the European variety of slavery. It was bought over by William the Conqueror, by the way, when he came over, I think it was in 1066, and he conquered England. He brought that over from France. He was from France. Uh, how many times have you heard different authority figures refer to the global feudal system that's been instituted? All the time. I hear people refer to it all the time. Okay? In fact, last year, on just about a year ago, in another week or so, and you can go back in that other network's archives, and you can go listen to this show. And I would, I would actually encourage you to do so, because on April 15th of last year, Alex Jones had uh, Paul Craig Roberts on for an entire hour. He had retired, and he came back out of retirement to do that special show. And that entire hour was on the institution of the worldwide feudal system. And one of the things that stuck in my mind that day, and if you go back and listen to that broadcast, you'll hear it. And you'll hear it verbatim. And he said, but you can't do anything about it. You can do something about it. And that's what I'm going to teach you folks over the next couple of nights here. You can do something about it. And that's what I'm going to teach you folks over the next couple of nights here. Okay? So, uh, uh, two main types of serfs. One was the involuntary serf. We touched on him earlier. The other was the voluntary serf. Uh, uh, have you ever heard the term, Jeff, or any of the listeners out there? Have you ever heard voluntary compliance? Oh, like sure. our tax system is based on voluntary compliance? We had Oxymoron. a whole thing. Absolutely. Well, not really. We had a whole thing with RFID chips that said, oh, your compliance is voluntary. So don't you think those two words are oxymoron kind of sounding? Of course they are. What if they're not? What if they mean that you volunteered in the system, and once you're in the system, you've got to comply? How about if that's how it means? All right. So what you're saying is that if you opt out of the system, you no longer have to comply? Move to the head of the class. Ooh. Involuntary serfs were involuntary by birth. There was only one way to get out of slavery in the English feudal system if you were born into it as an involuntary serf. And that way was that if you were a bastard. Because if you were a bastard, there was at least some modicum of a chance that you were fathered by the lord of the manor. And if you prosecuted that point and you didn't know who your mother and especially your father were, you could get out of slavery that way. Okay? Interesting. Yes, it is, isn't it? Uh, we well, talked a little bit about the uh, question. No, I, it becomes more interesting because for all the years you've known me, you know how much I enjoy teaching history. And that is what makes this one even more interesting to me is because we begin to realize that the state 
uh, or, uh, that we happen to be sitting in today, and I don't mean North Dakota and Virginia, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, but the position that we as Americans sit in today, it, it, it's historically, it goes back hundreds of years. So uh, it's like an ongoing you know, experiment. Actually, thousands of years, if you really wanted to research that right. back. Now, and, you know, this is something I've thought about. We're getting towards the end of the hour here, and I'll, I'll, I'll kind of stop the definitive stuff for a minute because I don't want to miss a transition for tomorrow night. But I, I do want to tell you a couple of stories, and these are things that I've just thought about because this has eaten up my life for 18 years. So I, I think about it just, uh, you know, constantly for 18 years. That's why this is such a pleasure talking to you people tonight because this I consider this to be my life's goal and my major your life's accomplishment, okay? And that's, uh, I've, I've accomplished some pretty pretty big things in my life in my past, and this one dwarfs them all. So I'm very privileged to be bringing you this information and explaining it to you tonight, okay? Uh, but I wanted to say, if you were the guys that were going to take over the world, and you were going to institute these kind of systems, would you go out and dream up a whole new system? and worry about all working out the bugs or the things you hadn't thought about or other contingencies you never even dreamed of, would you do that? Or would you go back in history and find something that had worked for, as you said, hundreds, maybe even over a thousand years? Wouldn't you bring that system forward because it was tried and true and proven and just change a few of the words around so that nobody knew what the heck you were doing? Absolutely. It makes life a lot easier. Okay, it sure has made it easier for them, and it's made it miserable for all you people, because they've hidden it so darn well that nobody's been able to figure it out. And I'm going to explain to you how my mentor started figuring this out, because if you don't think God's at work here, you got another thing coming. Okay. Mm. Because this guy loved the law since he, when he was a young man. You know, I, I get they're Mormons, and and I guess when you're in the Mormon you, uh, religion, you go through a thing like a bar mitzvah for the Jewish religion, where you you know come of age. And I don't know what the ceremony's called, but I remember John telling the story. And when he was a young man, and and the elder came in and they lay hands on you, and they supposedly can see your future. And what that guy told them was, he said, people will come to you from north, east, west and south to seek their freedom. Heavy? Yeah, very heavy. Heavy means. We're down to uh, probably the last two minutes. Let's wind this one down. Do keep in mind, Roger will be rejoining us tomorrow evening, and we will pick up. Let's go ahead and wind this one down, and uh, this has been... An amazing hour, my friend. Okay, well, I'm going to tell you the story. He'd been studying law for years. He got absolutely interested in this, in the IRS stuff and the taxing, because if they've got two Achilles heels, it's the financial system and the taxing system. Those are the two linchpins of their whole system, okay? So if you study the, either one of those in any kind of depth, you're going to pretty well find out fairly quickly that there's a, you know, a skunk in the wood pile somewhere. Well, John was living in Denver. He was in the University of Denver Law School back in the old English law book section, and you know, if you've been in a law library, especially in the older parts, the aisles are real narrow. And as he turned around to put a book up, his elbow hit a book on the opposite aisle, side of the aisle, and the book fell out of the shelf, and it fell open on the floor. And he looked down, and what caught his eye was it was on this old English feudal system, and the way that they would go back and seize if you were a debtor, okay? And mm. the things that he read were the things that they couldn't seize. They could seize everything else, but they couldn't seize your work product, etc., etc. And he'd studied tax law enough that he said, that's the exact same stuff the IRS can't seize. And that's where this started. 
Wow. Well, this is where it ends for tonight. Roger Sales, we made it through an entire hour from Argentina without difficulty. <laughs> Those of you bums out there who want to neck muck with the technicalities, put it to bed because we ain't going to quit until we're done. Roger, thanks for being here with us. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for being patient, giving us your valuable time tonight. Till the good Lord sees fit to bring us together again without apology. I am Jeffrey Bennett. Jeff Bennett here for the next uh, hour on life, liberty, and all that jazz. And tonight we're going to be returning to the all that jazz uh, because that's what we've been doing. We've been getting jazzed for years, and I don't necessarily mean in a positive light. Ladies and gentlemen, if you go back to the early days of that form of music and you understand what the darker community in this uh, nation meant when they talked about jazz, well, that's what the government and the economists have been doing to each and every one of us for many, many, many years. So welcome to tonight's very special installment. Uh, before I bring our guest on, I want to share a brief paragraph that came to me last night by our guest. And he states that for almost a third of his entire life, he's been trying to get people to listen to the message that he's trying to share with you right now and to get you to understand it. He says, at this point, I think I've been shown a relatively easy-to-understand way of presenting it from, top, from the top down as opposed to the bottom-up approach that we had tried to utilize for so many years. <clears throat> he says, my hope and prayer is that I can position a silver spike above the demon's heart and help to educate and anger tens of thousands of people with mallets to drive it in. And that is the basis of what we initially intended at getting out over a two-night time period. But I think I know our guests well enough to say that this is going to go on for quite a while. Obviously not consecutively, because... That we can't do, but we'll get all those details worked out. Welcome once again to the program, Roger Sales, the town crier, and I'm turning the mic over to you because I'm going down the hall to the library. Well, thanks for the introduction. <laughs> you almost you almost get me teared up here starting. Don't do uh, that because I know how you sound when you get teared up, brother. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, me too. Um, thanks, man. Thanks a lot. And it is it's a it's accumulation of an 18 year goal, and for me, it's the probably the major goal of my life. And I think if we can get what I'd like to see happen and the ripple effect happening here, it'll it'll be my major life's accomplishment enough for me. Uh, uh, what uh, what I intend to do, or at least I'd like to do, if any of you remember the uh, Alfred Hitchcock movie, The Birds, uh, Bodega Bay, up there above San Francisco, is I would like to help create a, uh, this is Zero Hedge's word, uh, a cluster flock, a cluster flock of black swans. And I'd like to have you people get black swanned up and start attacking these people like those seagulls did in Bodega Bay. So that's my purpose. Uh, once again tonight, I want to start with a prayer, though, and I want to thank God for giving me the knowledge and the understanding and the ability to communicate this information. And my prayer is that I'll get the right words from the right thoughts and that those words will land on the right hearts of those who, who that burning fire of freedom burns in your chest because this is the way you can achieve it. And Jesus told us he's the, the, the truth, the way, and the light. And this is the truth, and it's the way 
to find the light, and it's the light of freedom. So with with that, I say amen, and I, and, and, and we're going to get started. Um, and, and I'm going to come back and address this top-down thing, because I neglected a little bit last night, assuming that everyone was listening last night that had listened to our original program about ten days ago when we talked mainly about Argentina. But I touched on some of this that night. And one of the great revelations to me, and, and actually to my mentors also, uh, came as my decision to leave the country, because I'd never had a passport before. And quite frankly, I was kind of scared to uh, uh, to get one and to apply for one because you know one of the ways the federal government controls you is through intimidation. That's why they wear black. And so uh, uh, back when in MLM days, the, uh, one of my trainers said, "Fear is an acronym for fantasized experiences appearing real." And those are those things that stop you in your tracks from moving forward because you literally have fear of what might be on the other side. And I know everybody listening can relate to this because I swear it's happened to everybody. And all of a sudden, for whatever reason, you have to address that fear, and you address it. And it's easy, and you look back and go, why was I so terrified of that? Why was I so scared of it? There's nothing to it. It was easy. And that's what happened to me in this decision, because I had to get a passport because I made the decision to leave the country. Okay, So uh, I knew that I had to go get a passport application. And uh, uh, if you'll think about it, uh, the passport application is probably the single most important document in a federal government that has millions of documents when it applies to your status, which is your status in the political community and in the society. So I went and got this uh, orange one, the first time application, and I, I read this the other night, but let's go over it again because some of you might have missed it, and it's dreadfully important. Uh, and, and I read the first paragraph. It says, application for a U.S. passport on the top. By the way, there's a link on Jeff's site to a uh, reapplication for passport. You can see this same verbiage. They hide it a little bit better in there. Uh, and, and the first sentence in, in capital letters, it says, warning. False statements made knowingly or willfully in passport applications, comma, including affidavits or other supporting documents submitted therewith are punishable by uh, gelding and, uh, you know, possession of your firstborn male child. Uh, so what they're telling you there, and can make a declaration earlier in the docs, U.S. passports are issued only to U.S. citizens or non-citizen nationals. Each person must obtain his or her own passport. All through this thing, it talks about in the instructions several times. Two different types of citizenships. What did we cover last night that it says under the Paperwork Reduction Act? Often, this is difficult to do because our citizenship laws are very complex. We covered a lot of definitions last night, and we didn't really cover all of them, and we didn't go into great depth because I'm trying to keep this streamlined and simple. You think the citizenship laws are a little complex? What does it say in the oath on the passport that you sign? In big letters above it, STOP, capital letters, with a box around it. Capital letters. Do not bold capital letters. Do not sign this application until requested due to, to do so by the person administering oath. What does the oath say? I declare, under penalty of perjury, that I am a citizen of the United States, parentheses, or a non-citizen national, close parentheses, and have not, since acquiring United States citizenship, 
parentheses, or U.S. nationality, parentheses, performed any of the acts or conditions listed under acts or conditions on the reverse side of the application form, parentheses, unless explanatory statement is attached, parentheses closed. Now, in the second part of that sentence, they tell you that you're going to have to include some sort of documentation if you've done and violated any of these acts or conditions. Yet, in the preceding part of the sentence, it gives you two different, and they're totally mutually exclusive because one of them is a citizen and the other is a non-citizen national. But they don't tell you there to attach any documentation, do they? No. Where do they tell you? Way up at the top of the form. How do they tell you? Warning. If you do this or do that, you're going to jail or get fined or whatever else we can do to you. So I think you can see the point I'm getting to is these things are separated. Well, when I saw that, I knew exactly. When I saw the word affidavit, I knew I was home free. Okay? I didn't even read the rest of the form. I did eventually, but I knew at that point that I had them. Okay? Because I understood all this information we're going to talk about. Uh, and we're going to get into the meat of this stuff tonight. Uh, but let me, uh, since we're on this, let me go into a, a little more of an explanation. This was a top-down approach that really opened my eyes. Because before, it would take three or four hours to go over this complicated information and these technical legal things that most people have no idea of. I didn't have any idea of it when I sat down and saw this information for the first time, and it took me a while for it to clear up. Because like I told you last night, you're untying these knots in your mind that they've done like Pavlov's dogs with you and everybody else. They've taken a word with a definition that you identify with a colloquial definition in one hand on your right. Point your right arm out with your finger pointing out. And they've taken that definition and they've put it way over there and you relate to it because that's the one they hammer home to you all the time and condition you with. Then they've taken an opposite, totally, highly technical, legal definition, put your left arm out and stretch it out, that's exactly that direction. Okay, and they've got your knot tied in, your mind tied in the knot. Now, I've had a had an idea for years, and I tell people this, and I don't think that's ever failed me. If you want to listen to something these creeps tell you, and you want to find out what the truth is, look 180 degrees in the opposite direction, because that's where you're going to find the truth, and it's virtually never been wrong. And that's this tying your mind in knots and throwing you down another direction, totally opposite. It's just like Bale said. Trick them and defeat them with words. Okay, so that's what we're dealing with. Now, since we had a basketball game last night, transition into sports. I'm going to use a sports analogy here. Let's say we got the team of citizens that are playing in the championship game, and it's basketball. And you're real good. You got a great team assembled, and you want to go out. It's right before the game, and you go out to do your warm-ups and stuff. But when you go out on the court. The court's like no court you've ever been on before. And your tennis shoes aren't real sturdy on, on that surface. And you're trying to dribble your balls, and it doesn't really react the same way. And you're trying to warm up and get practice for the big game, because it's the title game. Okay, It's the title game of freedom. All right, And all of a sudden, the Federale team comes out of their locker room. They're dressed in black, by the way. Except their uniforms have all kind of pads on them. And they come out and they don't have Nike tennis shoes on. They got these black shoes on and they got a real long, skinny metal spike on the bottom of it. And they don't have all, they got these sticks with a curve. And they aren't, drib aren't dribbling, they got this little bitty hard black thing that they're shooting around at about a hundred miles. It's happening. Playing hockey and you're playing basketball on ice. Now, I ask you, who the hell do you think is going to win that game? 
And that's exactly what we've been doing. We've been playing all this constitutional law, thinking you've got access to the Constitution, and they've made you all slaves. And you don't have access to the Constitution because you don't get your rights from God. You get your privileges from government. They call them civil rights. Okay? So we're going to cover a lot of this tonight, and, and hopefully I'll be able to explain it. It's, I've tried to cut it down and not make it complicated, but yet, like the analogy last night, make it long enough to cover the subject matter. So uh, what I'd like to pick up is where we transitioned off last night when the bell went off, uh, with John finding, uh, knocking the book off of the shelf. The book falls open on the floor. He looks down at the book, and it's the old English uh, tax system, and there's a list of the things that the king couldn't take from you when he came and took everything else. And John had been studying enough to know that those were the exact things that the IRS can't take from you. Work product, etc., etc. And that's what started a lot of this. And that's why I'm here tonight is because of this great man's dedication and sacrifice. And I won't get into that or I will get misty. Uh, so, we're going to transition into the uh, uh, into a little bit to the feudal era. Uh, when When you had a feudal zone over there in Europe and in England, it was called a manor and the boss was called the Lord of the Manor. Now, the king had his own court. There was a bunch of courts back in England in those days. Uh, had a court for each jurisdiction. Uh, uh, you had a court for admiralty. You had a court for uh, equity. You had the king's bench. You had a court for uh, ecclesiastical, etc., etc. Uh, so, but the king's court, the highest court in the land of common law, was called the king's bench. However, serfs didn't have access to the king's bench. Because they were on the manor and they were property, like we discussed last night. The lord of the manor owned a property right in them. They're legally a thing. So the serfs had their own courts on the manor that they had to go through. You know, kind of like Article Three courts? Called this. Because that's what you got up there in the States right now, is you've got a, a, a manorial court system. And if you look at any case that's brought in any of those courts, in the very first paragraph... It says, so-and-so, a resident of, boom. And there's their jurisdiction in the first paragraph. It's in every one of them. Okay? We're going to cover that more in depth, too. So, uh, uh, and, and they only deal with residents. So, are you a resident? Sure, I'm a resident. This is an R. 180 degrees, boom. Legal definition imputed. So I'm going to read a little bit tonight. I don't really like to do that, but I, I feel like it's so important to cover this. This is the meat of the subject, and, and, and we're going to read from that affidavit online, too, a little bit. So some of you might uh, bring that up if you want to read along with me on that. Don't all of you go at once, or you might crash Jeff's site. I hope No, let me, let me say that, Raj, let me say this, because it has been interesting. I've had a lot of people that have come in and said, well, gee, uh, I couldn't open that or whatever. It is in a PDF file format. So if you don't have Adobe on your system, you're going to have a little bit of a problem with it. But if you go to the Republic Trading Group International.com website, right at the top it says returning April 5th, 2011. It gives you about a paragraph of the basics of what this program is about. Click on where it says continued reading. And I believe the affidavit you're talking about is the one that you commonly refer to as the Get out of slavery card. Is that correct? No. Well, yeah, I guess one of us and, comically yeah, referred that to opens it up, That opens up your affidavit, which was filed in Bay County, Florida. Yes. And just click on, and it'll open up. So that's what. And I want. 
and while we're talking about that, and we're going to get into that in a few minutes, but I wish if you're looking at that, that you notice the date that that was filed. All the stamps are on there. It's certified. It's notarized. All the legal stuff, all the I's dotted and the T's crossed. And the date that was filed was December 31st of 1992. That affidavit has been presented to the IRS. No objections, no rebuttal affidavit. I've gotten two passports with it at this point, an original one and a replacement one, because my other one was stolen. We're going to talk about that later on, too. Not to run. I've gotten my Social Security with it. I insisted through the through the embassy in Buenos Aires with the gal that I worked with, sweet gal down there, uh, that that uh, that affidavit be attached to my application and made incorporated by reference. No problems. I'm getting my Social Security checks. Thank you. It's money they took from me a long time ago. Uh, it, it comes at a very convenient time for me. And I got a Florida State picture ID as a non-resident non-citizen of the United States and it's hologrammed and it's suitable for any Patriot Act requirement and I'm going to talk about that a little bit later too so anyway let's get into the meat of what we're going to talk about we're going to case that we mentioned last night the US versus Wong Kim Ark uh, Wong Kim Ark obviously was Chinese and this statement that I'm going to read right here is from a guy named Justice Fuller now he was not just Justice Fuller he was Chief Justice Fuller. So this statement is written by the Chief Justice of the Supreme Court on the dissenting side of the opinion. So if anybody disagrees with me, or you want to be argumentative, go find where Chief Justice Fuller is buried and go get argumentative with him. Because I'm citing you language out of a standing Supreme Court case that's never been over return ever been overruled and it was used extensively recently within the last few years by almost all the legal country that went after him on this bursting because it's in case in the personal that deals with citizenship denizenship how citizenship is transferred what the laws of England was what your rights are and if any of you are really interested in that I really suggest you go back and read that case okay but I'm just going to read you a little part here because this proves my point absolutely and unequivocally the rule was the outcome of the connection in feudalism between the individual and the soil on which he lived and the allegiance due was that of a liege man to a liege lord. That the 14th Amendment prescribed the same rule as the Act, and that if the amendment bears the construction now put upon it, it imposed the English common law rule on this country for the first time, and it made it absolute and unbending, just as Great Britain was being relieved of its inconvenience. What's he telling you there? He's telling you the 14th Amendment brought the English vote slavery, the feudal system, into America for the first time. And it was what? Made it absolute and unbending. So if any of you want to argue with the system that we're dealing with or how I've come to these conclusions, go read the case. It's all right there. It amazes me that the people that have used the case so much never pick some of this stuff out and put it together. But I understand it's a difficult puzzle. It's easier when it's explained to you to see it from the back end. It's a simple concept. They've just muddied the water at so many levels that even the finest legal country have not been able to figure it out. Okay? So... What I'd like to do now is read a little bit more out of the Constitution this time. 
But we're not going to read the 14th Amendment first. We're going to read the 13th Amendment first. The 13th Amendment was passed before the Civil War. Many of you know that the, the amendment we're going to read was an placement, a replacement for another amendment, which was the original 13th Amendment. They somehow got that out of the Constitution, and they put this new one in. And I'll tell you, one of the guys in Atlanta, uh, uh, Joe, that found this, his family was in Connecticut, and he went up to visit, went into one of the libraries down there, and he found an old Connecticut law book. And he opened it up, and there was an original Constitution in there, and there was the original 13th Amendment printed in the law book. Okay? So don't say it didn't happen. It happened, and they didn't want people with titles of nobility, such as Esquire, like lawyers, being in Congress. And they had to get rid of that. And they got rid of it, and they replaced it with this one. <clears throat> and it says, Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude except as a punishment for a crime wherein the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place to their jurisdiction. All right? So let's talk about that. Did that outlaw slavery, Jeff? Jeff's not there. Okay. Well, I'm here. I was, I was okay. muted. No, it did not outlaw okay. slavery. No, it didn't, did it? It outlawed involuntary slavery, didn't it? It didn't say one thing about voluntary slavery, did it? Because the Constitution has a clause that you can't impair the right to contract. There are certain peoples that go into a bonded type of slavery, a bond servant, where they literally give their body for whatever money, and they work out their time, and they're gone. So they use this loophole right here to drive the entire agenda of slavery through. That's why I think they had to get this thing in there. They had to get the other one out. And the other thing I wanted to point out here is the last clause, or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Collective, right? Mm -hmm. States. Huh? Okay. So let's go to the 14th Amendment. And it reads, All persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof are citizens of the United States and the state wherein... They died. Did you see any plural language there? Let me, there let me break, Raj, let me break in for just a second and clarify. The final word in that statement was reside. What you may Correct. not be aware of is we're getting a little bit of clipping. We are going to go to a break at the bottom of the hour, and we are going to attempt a reconnect of this call. We're getting a lot of clipping on this, so we just may okay. have a bad connection. Okay, could be. Proceed. I wish I had time to reboot my computer. I know. Uh, so we'll come back and uh, read that again, and we'll cover what we're going to talk about, okay? And sorry for the clipping. No, we still got six minutes or so. Keep okay. going. Okay, all right. Well, let's go ahead. And all persons, read it again, born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jury thereof. That's singular. That ain't plural. So between the 13th and 14th Amendment, you went from a there to a it's are citizens of the United States and the state wherein they reside. Now, from the definitions we covered last night a little bit, let's analyze this. What did we say about persons? Persons isn't just you, you're a, you're a, you're a human, you're a person. It can be a corporation or whatever. And it's a, a legal definition is what? An entity to whom the law ascribes rights and duties. Rights and duties, remember, are correlative. Okay? So there's one landmine. In other words, hey, I may not be that person. I don't receive any rights. If I don't owe any duties, that ain't my personage. Okay? 
Naturalized in the United States. Well, which United States? If you go to Black's Law Dictionary and look up United States, it says this term has several meanings. There's about three of them or four of them listed there. They're from another Supreme Court case. So if it says the United States, which United States? And subject. What are subjects? England has subjects. To the jurisdiction. What is jurisdiction? Protection for allegiance. Allegiance for protection thereof. And what did it say? We'll cover the jurisdictional thing here, here in, a, in a little bit. Uh, I think I read it last night, and it said uh, that clause made um, uh, made that uh, it was absolute and unbending, didn't it? To the jurisdiction of the United States, but completely subject to their political jurisdiction and owing them direct and immediate allegiance is what that clause means. Our citizens of the United States... Which kind of citizens? The new citizens under the 14th Amendment. And of the state wherein they reside. The most dangerous word in the English language in our society up there is reside. So there's about six or seven landmines in that first clause right there. And it's important to understand all those legal definitions we went under last night because if you understand those, you don't understand what they're saying here. Okay? Now, let me ask you a question, Jeff. You know what the 14th, you know, every time they pass a law up there, they, they give it a legislative title while they're working on it. And with this particular one, later on, it was termed the 14th Amendment when it was falsely ratified by force and intimidation and added to the Constitution because they had to get it in there. You know what the working title of the 14th Amendment was, Jeff? You got muted again. Uh, the I'm civil... with you. I'm with you. Go ahead. The working title of the 14th Amendment was the Civil Rights Act. Ah. Okay. Ding, ding, ding. So we uh, all jump. So, we all done jump up to the 1960s. Is that what you're saying? Well, you you sure did. And we're going to cover that in more detail. But I think people are starting to see the light here. You know what I think. Uh, I think uh, Truman said, "When I feel the heat, I see the light." <laughs> um, so, if you want to confirm this, you can go to Title 42 of the United States Code. It's one of those volumes, Title 2. And what Title Title 42? It's the Civil Rights Title. All right, and you can go to sections 1960 and 1961. If they hadn't changed them, I hadn't looked recently, but I don't think they have. This is Congress. This isn't Roger. All right, and what does it say in there? A citizen of the United States is equal to all the privileges and immunities of the white citizens. That's in the United States Code today, sports fans. Huh? That's Congress talking. So, about that, we'll go over. And how close do we are, are? Are we to the break, Jeffrey? We're getting pretty close. We've got uh, maybe thirty, forty-five seconds. About it. All right. Well, let me go back in and touch on something that I read the first night. The people here may not have heard that. And <coughs> excuse me. And this is a quote from Louis T. McFadden, the great Louis T. McFadden, in one of his speeches. And he says, "The New Deal lawyers now have no hesitancy in appearing in court and asserting that private citizens can contract away their constitutional rights." That's Louis T. McFadden speaking from the grave to you folks. He knew what was happening. 
He may not have known as explicitly as you're going to by the time we're finished, but he knew that there was a skunk in the woodpile somewhere, and that's why they killed him, all right? And that and many other reasons, and it took him three attempts. He was a heck of a guy. Uh, mm. And I'll repeat what I said the other night. The last time he ran for Congress in his district in Pennsylvania, he was nominated by the Democrats, he was nominated by the Republicans, and he was nominated by the Populist Party, which was popular. Back. I don't believe you're ever going to find another congressman that was Okay, we got to run to a break, Raj. Sit tight. We may do a reconnect, and uh, but we'll be right back with you, folks. Enjoy. I hope you're learning something. Okay, we're going to get back into this. Hopefully our connection is a little bit better. We've readjusted and reconnected. I'm going to read from this affidavit, and like I said, I kind of hate to do that, but uh, anybody wants to open it up that you can, and you want to read along and follow the bouncing ball, this is important stuff. All right. This is from a case called the Slaughterhouse Cases. This was the very first case that adjudicated the 14th Amendment. It was out of Louisiana. Uh, uh, and so it's called a landmark or a benchmark case, and they can't go back and overturn this because this is the key to their slavery system. All right. So let's read what, what they have to say here. It has been said, it had been said by eminent judges, that no man was a citizen of the United States except as he was a citizen of one of the states composing the Union. Those, therefore, who had been born and always resided in the District of Columbia or in the territories, though within the United States, were not citizens. Whether this proposal was sound or not had never been judicially decided. So it says that there were these people in this federal zone that were in limbo. And there was like a lot of discussion in the public journals and newspapers, it says in another place. And it had never been judicially decided. But it had been held by this court, the Supreme Court, in the celebrated Dred Scott case. Many of you have learned about that. Only a few years before the outbreak of the Civil War, that a man of African descent, whether a slave or not, was not and could not be a citizen of a state or of the United States. This decision had never been overruled, and if it was to be accepted as a constitutional limitation on the right of citizenship, then all of the Negro race who had recently been made free men were still not only not citizens, but were incapable of becoming so by anything short of an amendment to the Constitution. To remove this difficulty primarily, the first clause of the first section was framed. That the, I'm going to repeat this, that the main purpose was to establish the citizenship of the Negro, Negro can admit of no doubt that the main purpose was to establish the citizenship of the Negro can admit of no doubt. Okay, now this isn't racist. This is the way things were, all right? The next observation is that the distinction between a citizenship of the United States and a citizenship of a state is clearly recognized and established. It's quite clear, then, there's a citizenship of the United States and a citizenship of a state which are distinct from each other and which depend upon characteristics or circumstances in the individual. What does that mean? Circumstances and characteristics, that's your legal personality. Okay? These rights and duties and things. We think this distinction, its explicit recognition in the amendment of great weight in this argument, because the next paragraph in the same section speaks only of privileges and immunities of citizens of the United States and does not speak of those of the several states. The language is, 
No state shall make or enforce any law which shall abridge the privileges and immunities of the citizens of the United States. It is a little If this clause was intended as a protection of the citizens of a state, the original citizens, against the legislative power of its own state, that the word citizen of the state should be left out when it was so carefully used and used in contradistinction of citizens of the United States in the very sentence which preceded it. It is too clear for argument that the change in phraseology was adopted understandingly and with a purpose. Of the privileges and immunities of the citizen of the United States and privileges and immunities of the citizen of the state, it is only the former the citizens of the United States, which are placed under this clause, this the Privileges and Immunities Clause, under the protection of the federal Constitution, and that the latter, the citizens of the state, wherever they may be, are not intended to have any additional protection by this paragraph of the amendment. The latter must rest on their security and protection where they have heretofore rested for they are not embraced by this paragraph. It's telling you, clear as day, we got no effect on these people. This is for this whole new class of citizens, which this first clause has empowered with rights and duties. The only thing they call them civil rights, the Civil Rights Act. And they have correlative duties. But, with few exceptions, few, the entire domain of the privileges and immunities of citizens of the state, as above defined, lay within the constitutional and legislative power of the state and without that of the federal government. They had no jurisdiction over them. Was it the purpose of the amendment to transfer the security and protection of all the civil rights, it doesn't mean these civil rights we're talking about, this is another branch under your political status. Political rights and civil rights make up your legal personality, which have been mentioned from the states to the federal government, and that Congress shall have the entire domain of civil rights heretofore belonging exclusively to the states, question mark. We're convinced that no such results were intended by the Congress, which proposed these amendments, nor by the legislature of the states, ratified them. So it's telling you, in two separate citizenships, and it goes into them in some detail. i jump forward in this a little bit, into the next page, under section 3 there, and this is from Wong Kim Ark. It's another case going into the 14th Amendment. And the opening sentence of the 14th Amendment is throughout affirmative and declaratory, intended to allay doubts and to settle controversies which had arisen and not to impose any new restrictions on citizenship. So you wonder why that passport has two citizens listed in there? Because there are two. And the 14th Amendment, according to Chief Justice, or, or Chief Justice Waite, did not impose any new restrictions on the old citizenship. And at that time, the theory largely obtained and stated by Justice Story, a very great man in the early part of the country that did commentaries on the Constitution, that every citizen of a state is ipso facto a citizen of the United States. Now, I want to explain to you in simpler language what they did. In the original citizenship, you had citizens of 
of a state, citizens of the state first, and what does Chief Justice Story here said? They were ipso facto, that's a legal term by the very fact. So by the very fact that they were citizens of the states, they were automatically secondarily citizens of the United States. They were citizens of the states. What did we say? You get your rights and you owe duties. Where did And you owe your allegiance, right? Allegiance for protection, protection for allegiance. Where did they get their, their allegiance? From the state. That was immediately under them. They were state citizens first, and they were United States citizens ipso facto. Secondly, the 14th Amendment switched that because these black people who had been property, they'd been things legally, the object of someone's property with them, after the Civil War they were free, but they had no legal status. So what did they do? They gave them a federal citizenship. And a citizen of the United States is first, and what's the second one? A state. But you have to reside in it to be a citizen of it. So the first one is a citizen of the United States. They get it from the federal government. Where do they get their rights, and where do they owe their duties? To the federal government. And what if they're a state citizen second? How do they get to be it? They have to reside within the state for them to be one. Okay, is this is this getting clear? Is this clear as clear or clear as mud? Well, I guess it must be clear as clear, so we're going to roll forward. The other thing to realize that's interesting here is that, and I just found this out about a year or so ago, talking to a guy up in North Carolina who's forming their own states under the old state laws, because all the states, as we know them, were dissolved in the Reconstruction Acts after the Civil War. So you don't really have states, you have political subdivisions of the federal government. So there's really no state comparable, except the one this guy's forming up in North Carolina, where you can be a state citizen. So what did they change citizen to? A U.S. national. That's the other legal status listed in the passport application. That's not Roger telling you. That's the federal government telling you. And they tell you right up at the top that you can make some declarations and you can apply and, and attach them to that application and send them in. And if you lie about it, they're going to come get you. Well, I sent mine in twice, and I've got two passports, and they hadn't messed with me. This is an unrebutted affidavit for those of you that are looking at it. It was filed on December 31st of 92. It's almost 20 years old. It's gone through five different agencies, the federal and state government. Nobody's ever said boo, raised one objection, or rebutted it, or objected to it in any way, shape, or form. When I presented this affidavit to them, it's just like the Wizard of Oz when you're throwing a bucket of water on the Wicked Witch of the West. Okay? They shrink away and they comply with what you want to do. Clear? You there yet, Jeff? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so clear as clear or clear as mud? A little of each. Okay. It's just as clear I, I, as it can this, be. You're going to have to go back and study this, man. Nobody said freedom's easy, all right? That's and nobody right. said you're going to get it easily. You're going to have to work for it. You know, there's a great quote from a great Supreme Court. He has one of the greatest names I've ever heard. His name was Judge Learned Hand. It's his real name. And in one of his decisions, he said, to claim your rights, you must be a belligerent claimant. You must be a belligerent claimant. They're not going to give them to you. You've got to go fight for them, folks. So this is also interesting. I heard Bob Chapman alluding to this right before uh, uh, we came on tonight. What did he say? They're now going all over the world, and they're making all these countries... Uh, report property deals for many Americans is what he said. And listen, I got the highest respect in the 
perfect. I've been listening to him for 12 or more years, religiously. I followed his advice. I'm set pretty for the rest of my life, okay? But let me tell you what. He made one mistake there. It's not only just Americans. In fact, it's not Americans. It's to citizens of the United States and residents. And if you'll read all these banking laws with all these treaties they sign, all of this reporting is only done for citizens of the United States and residents. Why? Because you're their property, man. Citizens of the United States are the only citizens in the world that are taxed on their worldwide income. Why do they do Because they own you. So how have you gotten into this system? How did you get into this mess? Well, you volunteered, man. Okay? They asked you. They said, are you a citizen of the United States? They did it in contract form. They did it on bank applications. They did it when you went to get a driver's license. And the very first question is, are you a resident? Everybody goes, yeah, I live right over there on 12, 12, 12, whatever street. Well, okay, you're a resident. Boom, they complete it. Well, what are they telling you? You told them you're a slave. You didn't know that's what you told them. The person at the clerk didn't know that's what you told them. But somebody up there in the higher ends of Washington, D.C. knows about it. They know exactly about it. So that's one thing. Oh, by the way, too, where else do they ask you that question, Jeff? You, when was the last time did, did you go down originally and register to vote? Um, I've avoided that one as long as humanly possible, right. but yeah, exactly. Well, if you go down to register to vote, guess what one of the questions is? Are you a citizen of the United States? Sure, boom. What do you do? You sign it. You signature. You sign what, Jeff? You sign contracts, don't you? Exactly. You told them what you were when you checked it. You know, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Isn't that the old uh, phrase, cliche, that you hear so long? And people say the federal government is tyranny. Hell, man, they're not. They're just enforcing this feudal law of regulations. All right? They, they, tyranny is when they tell you what you are. But they didn't uh, set it up that way. They asked you, and you told them what you were. Well, hell, Jeff, you ought to know you're a slave. Ignorance of the law is no excuse. You ought to know what you are. Exactly. Let me uh, interrupt for just a second. Um, I, I've got a couple of emails I want to share with you. Uh, the first one, and, and I know... Of what you're doing, because you're trying to get so much information out after all these years of this pent-out information. I received a marvelous email from Harry down in Tennessee who says, Jeff, I enjoy your show. I'm enjoying the hell out of your guests. His information intrigues me. I have but one small request. Please slow him down a little so some of us sluggers can keep up with his great information. But this is the one I want to share with you. This is quite interesting, and, and we can get to this as an answer on another day, but it's going to give you an idea of the kind of comments we're receiving while you're on the air. Uh, Connor writes, I'm really liking the series with Roger. I have a question I have seen asked that Roger may have an answer to. There are many of us out there who moved to the U.S. and are now resident aliens. How does all of this work for us? I found out after I moved here that the country I had moved to was something other than the America that was intended. I found out that after studying American history, I've decided I cannot in good conscience take the oath of citizenship to the bastardized corporate entity running the show. 
Well, what I would tell wow. Conra immediately is if you've got that term resident, whether it's alien or non or non-alien, uh, if you've told them that, the question I'd ask Connor, are you obligated to pay taxes and do you have to follow other regulations? And if that answer is yes, then, yeah, you, you've, you're in slavery, man. Okay. Interesting. So, okay, but let's go back to where we are, and I'm sorry for talking so fast. That's... The, the way I am, okay, and I'll try and slow it down. <laughs> but I would also say to Harry up in Tennessee and to anyone else that had that, that comment is that's why we're going to record these and we're going to put them on the website so you can go back and listen to them at your own pace. You can hit the pause button on whatever device you're using to play them, and you can study them. And we're going to offer at the end of this series a guide uh, if you choose to purchase it, which you can also follow that has this information and it's expanded it somewhat, okay? So I'll try and be conscious of that. Uh, you know, talking to no telling how many people and, and trying to uh, uh, complete a, a goal of 18 years on something that I know so well because I've lived it for so long, I understand. And I hope you understand my position. I'll try and be conscious of that. Uh, but you're going to have to put some work into this. It's not easy to untie the knots. This is very Complicated. What did it say in the our, our citizenship laws are very complex. Okay, they're honest with you, and they are complex. And if, that's why the definitions are so important. If you don't know that stuff, you're not going to read these things and impute the right legal definitions into those words. So. Try and keep all that in perspective. I'll try and slow it down. I know that the information is complicated. Okay, and uh, hopefully we, Jeff can have me back, and we'll be glad to take calls or any of that. Absolutely. So, so the answer, as I was saying, the other one, the, the terrible question is, are you a resident? Because everybody imputes a geographical definition to that term. But as an old salesman, you know, the answer was answer a question with a question. So uh, I started answering it when they'd asked me that question. I say, are you imputing a geographical or a political definition to that term? Okay, That's a good way to come back on them. So the actions of the federal government are not tyranny. They're enforcing governing regulations on a regulated group to which they legally have property rights. That's you folks. If you've ever answered any of that, yes, and you've not gone back and properly extricated yourself with an or some statement that is filed in some place like the property book. Just like I said last night, where does the IRS file their liens? Okay. okay. They ask you what you are, and you told them. And as we've discussed, you've heard, ignorance of the law is no excuse. Jeff, if I ask you that question and you answered me, you ought to know what the heck you are. That's your responsibility as a citizen to know that kind of stuff. Only thing is they've made it so complicated, even the finest legal minds in the country don't understand it. Mm -hmm. So how do you expect it to understand it? Okay. Yeah, exactly. The theory for all this, this is my opinion, the theory from all this, I believe, is a guy named John Locke. I didn't even know who this guy was, I'm embarrassed to say, when I got into this. He was one of the main influences on Thomas Jefferson, who I can really consider to be the finest mind that the country's ever produced. Uh, uh, and John Locke was a Scotsman. He wrote prolifically back in those days. And one of his books was called Two Treaties of Government. And one of those treaties was Government by Contract. And, uh, like, once again, because I know my enemy, and I understand.
information we're covering, I would just about guarantee you that that's where this whole idea came from. Okay. So, if you've told them, you got to make a declaration of your political status, and you can't do that until you understand it. Because I'm going to tell you, if you make it at some point and you start presenting this to the federal agencies that are coming at you, you're going to be forced to defend it. That's why you've got to make this information yours. And it's going to take a little bit of study and it's going to take a little bit of work. Okay? I can't help that. I can help you. I can show you. I can explain it to you. But I can't do it for you. Let me tell you one, though, that I think may help you a lot. How much time we got, Jeff? We got seven minutes. Yeah, okay. probably about six minutes, five, six. Okay. Minutes. Well, then I'm going to get into this, and we're going to continue it tomorrow night because this is important. And it's, I, it, you know, it's funny. I'd been in this for years, and I never understood this. We all got into this as a taxing thing because everybody, you know, everybody's interested in their pocketbooks, and it's a way to get more people's attention when we used to have to do this from the bottom up. And and at some point early on, we went to see a guy, and he specialized in administrative law, which is, you know, administrative agencies. And, and, and he said the key to understanding this is administrative law. And it was years before I really realized that the key to understanding the whole system is administrative agencies. And the reason for that is because those are the guys that write the regulations for the regulated group. If you got an administrative agency like the IRS and they write a regulation, does it apply to somebody in Hungary or somebody in Japan or somebody in Australia? No. It applies to the group that they regulate. By their own definition, they're regulatory agencies. They regulate. they got to regulate somebody. They regulate a regulated group. So if you're not in that group, they don't regulate you. But everybody's kind of intimidated and dinged by administrative agencies, aren't they? This yeah. is the absolute key. When did they come about? We didn't have them before the 30s. That's when Franklin, Franklin D. Roosevelt brought all these administrative agencies in. And they tried in the latter part of the 30s for years to get a piece of legislation through called the Administrative Procedures Act, the APA. It's in Section 5 of the United States Code. And it wasn't until after the war in 1946 that the, the Administrative Procedures Act was finally passed. And those to the govern these administrative agencies and who they can regulate and how they can regulate them specifically by promulgating regulations. We'll take Civics 101. I know we're getting close to the hour here. But how are laws passed? Congress, you either originate a bill in the House or you originate a bill in the Senate. If they don't totally agree, they go to a, a conference committee and they hammer it out where they both agree. Then they take that finished piece of legislation and they ship it over to the president and, and he said it then becomes law, correct? Yes. Okay. What does he do with it? He goes and gives it to the administrative agency whose jurisdiction that law falls under. And they promulgate regulations. And the regulations don't always necessarily come off of the law. So you've got these people where they put in the same system they did in France after the French Revolution. They've got unelected bureaucrats in key policy positions which make promulgate, is the, is the proper word, regulations that apply to a regulated group. Who's the regulated group? Citizens of the United States and residents. And with and that, with this, now, and with that, we got a hold till the next time.
Okay. We, uh, I've got about a minute left. I need to uh, uh, do, do several things. First, I want to guide our listeners to a couple places. Have to take care of a little RBN business here. Please go to Republic Trading Group International.com. Click on tonight's treasure chest for the uh, special package offering for gold we have for the week. Also, click into the article that's marked returning April 5th, 2011. Roger Sales. Scroll down. Click on the Get Out of Slavery card. Pay attention. Understand what you're looking at. This is going to be uh, an intense education, but Roger's right, and it's exactly what I've been telling you for years. You know, all I can do is leave you to water. From that point on, it's up to you to drink of the truth and to do your own research and to do your own studies. Take what we've taught you over this, Roger's taught you over these task last two nights and subsequent nights coming up. You're going to have to do the work if you want to set yourself free. Nobody else can do it for you. We We're want a time. Cl cluster flock, a cluster flock of black swans. That's it, buddy. Hey, listen, I'll talk to you later. Thanks for being with us again, ladies and gentlemen. It's time for us to go. I've had three hard hours tonight, but they've been good hours. So stay with us here on RBN. We'll be back another time. Take care of yourselves. See you, Chief. Yeah, but Let's get back to work. Roger Sales, welcome back to the program. Jeffrey, I can't thank you enough, and I can't thank all the audience for your kind words. Uh, I've been at this many years. I couldn't get many people to listen. So seems like there's some people listening. And one of the conclusions I came to over those years, and I quit telling people about it about ten years ago, is because I'd been socially ostracized. People had called me a tin hat wearing guy. You know, every name that you can call, I've been alienated from family and everything else just for trying to show the truth. And so I figured it was like beating your head against a wall because it feels so good when you stop. Uh, and, and it came to me that the American people weren't ready to listen. And, but I knew that they would be, and that time has come, and you're listening, and I appreciate it. Uh, and, and as always, I want to say thank God for the, the talents and the abilities given given me and the chance I've had to uh, uh, to work on them and bring them to some sort of uh, uh, of a height of fruition. And I pray that you'll give us the thoughts and the words tonight that will fall upon the ready and willing and listening ears that will touch your hearts and maybe light the, lie, the fire of freedom in your breast. Uh, so thank you, Lord, for all these things and these people, and we'll move forward. Um, we left off last night with uh, talking about administrative law a bit and administrative or regulatory agencies. They're referred to as, as both. Uh, a couple of years back, you know, I've been in this, like you know, now over 18 years, and, and you don't get all of this at one time, and all of the picture doesn't come clear at one time, and, and you keep thinking about it because it obsesses me uh, still. Uh, and, and a couple of years back... Um, it, it hit me that this is really the key to understanding them because we've learned in the last few nights how they've enslaved you. And and what we know now uh, uh, is that uh, you, you're considered property. Uh, now, how do they administrate that? And this is what everybody comes in contact with because who dings you? Who dings you when they come after you? The IRS comes after you, the enforcement division, or, or they're going to garnish your wages or take your car, or OSHA, or EPA, or, 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 or BATF, or any of those. And those are all administrative agencies. So the administrative agency scheme was first used in France after the French Revolution. 
In fact, I remember, John doesn't remember this, but I do. Uh, the word bureaucrat, uh, uh, he told us many years ago, is, it came from the, the French bureau, and uh, that means burlap. And they called bureaucrats because they had burlap on their desks in the administrative scheme. So that's where the word bureaucrat comes from, at least to the best of my memory. Uh, so these agencies came into our lives in the 30s, and they were put into existence during Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You know, I got a friend in Atlanta who, who told me, he said, the whole time I was growing up, I thought Roosevelt's first name was Dam. So uh, uh, that's where they were put in, and because they were new, they had to have some kind of legal framework to work within because they're going to regulate a regulated class. All right, uh, And in the 30s, they tried for years to pass the Administrative Procedures Act. They didn't get it passed until after the war in 1946. It's in Title V of the United States Code. And those are the rules that administrative agencies absolutely have to operate by. Now, the wins you see and that you've heard about uh, 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 people in, uh, that, that beat the IRS, etc., they beat them in regulations because they have to do the regulations correct and most of the time they don't. So if you understand regulations, you can hold these guys' feet to the fire and because that's what the courts are there to do, they regulate Article 3 just like on the manor with the serfs, they regulate the slaves here, the citizens of the United States and the residents. And so if you can trip them up in some procedure they've done, you can win that way. And people think that's a great win and it is a win. A win's a win, but it's not solving the problem of getting around to the basis of the system and correcting the inequities and the lies and deceits that are there. So it's important that we at least know a little bit about administrative agencies. Uh, and so what are the questions? What are they? And when do they come in existence? Well, they're agencies of people that are meant to regulate groups or administrate the law. We went over last night just a bit about how laws are made. Civics 101. Uh, you know, bills are either originated in the House or the Senate. They're passed by that body. When the bill is passed by both, if the bills don't agree, they go to a conference committee and hammer out something that's acceptable to both houses. When that's done, they send it over to whoever the sitting puppet is, and he signs it. At that point, it becomes law. Then they pass it to the appropriate administrative agency, and they promulgate regulations. We could do a whole program on regulations. I'm not going to cover a bunch of that tonight. There's three types, and only one of them applies to you, and that's substantive regulations. And a substantive regulation has to be published in the Federal Register, and it has to be published under a very explicit routine, and it's called notice and comment. So if you ever go to the Federal Register, which is the legal organ of the United States government, you'll see some regulations are just in there. Some of them have notice and comment. And that means they've got to go out there and publish this. It'll say, Notice of Proposed Rulemaking. And they'll list whatever the regulation is. And at the bottom, they'll say, If you have a comment, send your comment to, and it'll give a person an address. So the reason for that is because these regulations are, affect everybody. All right? So they have to put them out there, notice and the right to be heard, due process, and they get feedback. Then they have to wait 
and take all that feedback in, and what they're supposed to do is to take everyone's feedback and then re-promulgate the regulation, and they put it in again, and they put it in as notice of final rulemaking. And then that runs for 30 days or whatever it is, and then it can't take effect for another certain number of days, either 30 or 60 a days. So it's a long process, and it's very, very specific. And they've got to adhere to that. And if you can go back and trip them up on applying a regulation to you that was not properly promulgated, you can get out of it. And I'll tell you one of them, because I researched it and is how I learned all this, is a notice of summons for books and records. All right, And I went back and traced that thing back. You can trace regulations back, and it was never done with notice and comment, and it's got general applicability. So anyway, that's just a little background. It may be too complicated. I'm going to try and slow down a bit. You can always go back and listen to these broadcasts. That's why they're being recorded. They're currently in the RBN archives. You can pay a whopping dollar and 12 cents or whatever it is a month to listen to those and all the other fine programs on RBN. Or I believe, and Jeff can correct me if I'm wrong, that they will let you in one time to go in and sample the archives. So you take your choice. You should support the network. These people are doing you a great favor by an outlet to get this information out. And there's not very many other people and places you can do this, believe me, because I'm one that's been wanting to get it out for a long time. Okay, who do they administrate or regulate? Only entities that they have, here's our word again, jurisdiction over. How do they get jurisdiction? We're going to cover that in a second. How do they administrate? Well, they put these regulations out, and now they're not called laws. Actually, in the legal profession, they're called little laws. Now they're called policy. So you see what they've done? You want to point a finger at Congress for making laws. The real culprit is the administrative agencies, because they're the ones that interpret and apply the laws. And I think you'll find that every head of every administrative agency that creates policy are part of our enemy because then they control the organization. And you can find a lot of times where they're promulgating regulations that are totally against the intent of Congress and opposite what the intent of the original legislation was. This is how they changed the laws to control you, all right? So it's important that you understand this stuff. Um, as I said, the first time the system was used was in the French Revolution. And I'm going to read you a regulation, and I think you'll find that it will bring a little things into focus that we've discussed the last couple of nights that I know is confusing to people. We're untying the knots in your mind. We're teaching you to think specifically. You know, I've had a saying, it's not what you think necessarily, it's how you think. And that's the reason I've been so successful as this, is because I tailored my thinking when I learned how these guys worked and how they did things to start thinking like them. And that has given me absolute great horizons of understanding. The regulations, when you go to the law library, you'll see the United States Code, and there's 50 titles. 
And then on another shelf, you're going to see a bunch of little books that are like handbooks, and they're called the CFR. And that's the Code of Federal Regulations. And what they do is, let's take, we're going to go to Title 26, everybody's favorite title, the Income Tax Code. And if you're going to go to the Code of Federal Regulations, it would be 26 CFR. And then there'll be a list of books of all the regulations that are there. And we're going to go to 26 CFR. And we're going to go right to the head of that first book. And under 1.1-1, that's CFR, 26 CFR, 1.1-1. And it says, A, parentheses, little a. General rule. Section 1 of the code the Income Tax Code, Title 26 U.S.C., imposes an income tax on the income of every individual who is a citizen of the United States or resident. We've talked a little bit about those two terms the last couple of hours. Then it adds here, and to the extent provided by Section 871B, or 877B on the income of a non-resident alien individual. So we've got a tax that's applied to every individual who's a citizen of the United States or a resident, and then we've got another tax over here on this mysterious non-resident alien with these two specific sections. Well, I'm going to give you a tip. If you go back and analyze those two sections, 871B and 877B, guess what you find? You find that that's the taxation that's in the original Constitution. So now back to our passport application where we saw, and they're very emphatic, U.S. citizen or non-citizen U.S. national, there's two distinct political statuses there. What do we find in the income tax code right at the first of the regulations where the administrative agency is telling you who they've got jurisdiction over and who they regulate? We've got a citizen of the United States or a resident, and we've got a non-resident alien. Now, everybody, and listen, people laughed at us in the patriot community. Uh, the Save a Patriot guy ridiculed this information for years. But they don't understand how these words are being used and how they've been twisted to deceive you. Okay? So, this is what they've done. When you say non-resident alien, and when I tell you that this tax is to non-resident aliens, you think it's a bunch of Mexicans or, or, or whoever has come into the country illegally. Non-resident alien, correct? Jeff? That's what an awful lot of them seem to think. Okay. Well, let me tell you how your enemy thinks and how they scheme. We know that the 14th Amendment now is the nexus of, of their control, Right. Yeah. We know that the key word, the last word 
in the first phrase, the first time it appears in the Constitution, is reside, resident. And we know from the court cases that an important thing is has to convert, because a, a citizen of the United States is a federal citizen first, and then he's a state citizen second. But as it says in one of those law cases, an important element is needed to convert him to a state citizen. He must reside in it. That's why they ask you if you're a resident. All right. So let's take it even a step back. Let's take it to somebody everybody can relate to. If you're married and you got a wife, she's either pregnant or she's not pregnant. Is that pretty true? Yeah, absolutely. All right. Well, if you're a resident, you're either a resident or you're a non-resident. Is that right? Based on everything you've taught us so far, I would say yes. Okay, so, and if your citizenship is not the 14th Amendment citizenship, citizen of the United States or a resident, then you've got this other citizenship that they've told us about, this U.S. national, right? Mm-hmm. That's the only two options they offer in the passport application, the single most important document in the federal government's arsenal of documents to determine your political status. So if my citizenship is a U.S. national, my citizenship is alien to the 14th Amendment citizenship, isn't it? Absolutely. So in the tax code, the U.S. national is listed as a non-resident alien. I'm sure they just made a mistake on that. I doubt that they were meant to deceive anyone. Okay. <laughs> yeah, so okay. <laughs> if any of you... Now, hold it. There's one more point here. If you go on down from little a there, 1.1-1, parentheses, little a, we're going to go over to the next page under C. And there's an important question here. It says, who's a citizen? Question mark. Every person born or naturalized in the United States and subject to its jurisdiction is a citizen. We've heard that before in the last couple of nights, haven't we? Yeah, we have. Okay. So there's who your citizen is, a 14th Amendment citizen. Now, if you still don't believe me, would you believe a Secretary of the Treasury? Well, I'm not sure I would believe anything that comes out of the mouth of a government representative, but for would, would, and giggles, we'll say yes. Would you believe one from 1916? When they uh, used far to, better, they, far better than I would today's. Yes. Okay. The the benchmark case on the Sixteenth Amendment, of which the IRS says is their taxing power, we won't go into that. That's a whole another program. Everybody knows it's bogus. Uh, the first case that was tried under the Sixteenth Amendment, for those of you who've done some legal stuff in this area, you'll recognize it. It was the Brushhaber, Brushhaber versus Union Pacific Railroad. It's a long case. It's difficult to read. Uh, and in that case, Frank Brushhaber was his name. He claimed that he was a non-resident alien. Now, you can pull that case up on the Internet. Thank you, Debbie, for showing me this just recently. Uh, and, and it states in the write-up on the case that Frank Brushhaber claimed he was a non-resident alien. That's just about the case. But whenever there's an important case on taxation, because it's under the Treasury Department, the Secretary of the Treasury goes back and he writes a memorandum to circulate internally. And it's called a Treasury Decision, or... TD, and if you and you're going to have to dig in a law library somewhere. I don't know that it's online. TD 2314. I'm positive is the number. 
And that was the Treasury decision that was written from the Brushhaber case. And the Secretary of the Treasury was named McAdoo, one of these families that's been in government for several generations, obviously part of the plan. And in the Treasury decision, in the first paragraph, it says, Frank Brushhaber, a citizen of the state of New York and a non-resident alien. Hmm. So if you think that applies to Mexicans or some other ethnic or nationality that's here illegally, you go back and argue with McAdoo or argue with Brushhaber. Don't no, argue. It's inter- it, Raj, it's interesting you bring this up because while we were talking yesterday, I had come across an article that was not necessarily geared to specifically what you're talking about, but I began to smell this mentality. Um, of, of these illegals coming here to this nation, don't care what country they come from. And I begin to wonder if they don't understand our laws, our codes, and our regulations better than most Americans do. Most Americans have no idea that regulations are what govern them, if you want to know the honest truth. Okay. Much less any of the things we've covered so far here. Uh, so, this is a very salient point that's following us. There's 50 titles of the United States Code. There's 50 little things of the 50 CFRs. Each code title has an accompanying set of regulations. And at the first of every agency, they have to tell you who they regulate. Don't they? If they're going to have all these little laws behind them, don't they have to tell you who they relate to? And this is a really interesting point, and I didn't know this until recently myself, and John told me. Um, In the tax code, we've got our two distinct types of citizens, don't we? We've got, they call it different, now it's called a non-resident alien for the U.S. national, and we've still got the citizen of the United States and the resident on the other side. Because with taxes they had two different sets of of statuses that they had to regulate, so they had to put those two statuses in the CFR 26, the tax code, even though that's why they hid it so well, okay? But in every other CFR set of of regulations, they regulate residents only. Now, I have to ask you a question just for clarity for the audience's sake. You have continued to reference John. You are not talking about the owner of this network, obviously. No, I'm not, and, 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 and of course, this is my personal relationship. I'm talking about a, my mentor, and his name's John Benson, and I've been around some real famous people and really people of great accomplishment in my lifetime, especially in the music business. I hung out with people like Ringo Starr. I've been, I've, I've been with the Eagles. I've been with a lot of very famous musicians. I've been with a lot of the people that run the record companies and really run the stuff mm-hmm. behind the scenes. I've come across I've been at parties where sitting presidents, Jimmy Carter was there with his social, with his, uh, 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 with his, uh, his, uh, the guys that protect him. There were private parties in Macon, Georgia, the, the Capricorn picnic where people were openly doing cocaine and all kinds of drugs and, and, and there's the president walking around, okay? So I've been around some real high profile stuff. I've met some great people along the road of my life, alright? John Benson is the single finest man that's ever crossed my path. He has done more to change my life 
and hopefully he's going to have an effect on all of you. And this is a great man. Unassuming, portly yeah. little gentleman. My understanding is that John's out there listening tonight. So uh, thank you, John. Hey, thank you, John, from Roger. He knows I've told him this stuff before. So, uh, so it's very important that you go in and understand these administrative agencies. And now you see how they've tricked you with words. They see how they've tricked you with legal definitions. They see you see how they've they've set up this feudal system to oversee you, and they've allowed you to come in and volunteer in, just like the voluntary serfs in England. And they haven't made it very easy for you to volunteer out. And I'm going to tell you, you can do it, but you better be ready to stand toe-to-toe with the devil because they don't like sheep getting out of the pen, all right? A lot of people have got a hold of me and said, oh, yeah, I want to get out of taxes. Well, let me tell you something. This is something John told us early. I didn't understand it. A lot of you don't understand it yet. This isn't about taxes. This is about freedom, okay? And that's a big thing to realize big difference. I mean, I feel like I should have been born with a blue birthmark over half my face, all right, and running around the streets yelling freedom, because that's what this developed into to me, and I hope that's what it spurns and, and initiates you to do, you listeners, okay? So um, this is how they control you, is with regulations and threats and fear and intimidation and the big one is fear of loss because what oh i can't go up against the irs they'll throw me in jail loss of liberty i can't go up against the irs they'll take my car loss of possessions they'll put a lien on my house fear of loss that's why they get you to register everything so they know what you got so they can threaten to come take it away from you that's how they control you if you really want to take Yes, it is, isn't it? That's what I'm talking about. It's how you think. you got to come at this stuff from a back door. You can't approach it from the front door with normal people because you don't understand what they're talking about, and there's all kinds of traps laid out to trick you. you got to go back and use logic with a lot of this stuff. Hopefully enough of you have, have absorbed, and I know it's complicated, and I know it takes time. You're going to have to study. I'm sorry. I can't do it for you. I can explain it to you. I can tell you about it. I can answer your questions, but I can't make this information yours. You're the only one that can do that. And you're not going to progress until you make this information yours. If you want to take a copy of that affidavit and go file it and claim your natural political status, God-given rights, now you've got access to the Constitution. But you better know this information because, man, they're going to ding you and they're going to try and trip you up. They don't like sheep getting out of the pen. If We go back to the IRS. So now we know we're a non-resident alien. Guess what tax form you file? A 1040NR. It goes to a specific service center in Philadelphia. They handle all the non-resident alien returns. If you do that, they're going to send you a letter and ding you with a $5,000 frivolous filing penalty. They're not going to answer any of your questions. They're not going to address anything we've brought up. They're going to ding you. When we started doing this, they started paying out initially. You're supposed to be able to go back and capture three years of income that you've paid in because you've filed erroneously. 
quickly. Well, pretty soon, real quickly, they found out what was going on, and they started dinging us back then with $500 frivolous filing penalties. It's now, I'm told, 5000 And they immediately, they immediately start attacking interest and penalties on that. And the reason for that is because if you're going to get out of the system, they're going to at some point try and enforce everything that you've been in in a contractual nexus with them. It cost me $35,000 when I sold my house. They had $30,000. I didn't know. I bet I didn't know $2,000 in taxes. Before they got finished with me, it was thirty. And then they sent me a letter afterwards and said, we've taken this out and we've added another 5000 for taxes we think you're going to owe. Okay. Hey, the music man's upon us, my friends. Stay with us. We'll be right back with Raj. Well, I'm wasting my morning. This, I would, in my twisted sense of humor, I would let that piece keep going until Bing Crosby got to the part where he said, We're poor little sheep who have lost our way. Bah, bah, bah. Welcome back to tonight's Life, Liberty, and all that jazz. Let's get right back to Roger Sales. And his information is just too darn important to listen to me babble. So let's get back to it. I'll be back. Okay, sheep, I'm going to be your shepherd. I'm going to lead you to the great pasture with the big, tall, green grass. Um, so what I came to the thought a, a number of years ago that how they've really done this, and I try to, I found, you know, I found God because I found Satan, and I found Satan because I learned all this information, and I said no man could put this together. He had to have help, and if there's a Satan, there's got to be a God. All right. So that this is in a in a once again a backdoor way is what led me back to a really firmly spiritual basis in my life. That's why I start every one of these with a prayer. Uh, and and it seemed to me that when Moses went up to get the Ten Commandments and he came back down from the mountain and he saw all of the Israelites or the Hebrews, not the Jews, the Israelites or the Hebrews. And what were they doing, Jeff? You with me? Can I use you as a sounding board here? What were they doing? The, uh, you know, I, I kind of okay. got sidetracked. So okay. No problem. No problem. I'll roll. What they were doing was worshiping the golden calf. Oh, yes. Edward G. Robinson. I remember that in the movie. The golden calf of materialism. Because it was after the 30s when they cranked everything back up and they owned all the corporations then that they started selling you all of the products from the corporations that they owned. They bought all the corporations for pennies on the dollar after the stock crash that they manipulated in the 20s. And then they got you on credit. And look where you are now. All right. So it's through materialism that, it, this is my opinion, that they've really, because materialism, oh, now you got to keep up with the Joneses. I want that latest new widget. I need that. They got that. i got to have one over there. You lose track of everything because you're concentrating on material possessions and not on the things that are important, such as your freedom and these timeless and ethical uh, ideas and principles that are immutable. All right. So now I'm going to really upset you. Let's go talk just briefly about the monetary system. The monetary system, when the Federal Reserve says it needs a billion dollars, they call the Treasury, and the Bureau of Printing and Engraving prints up, and you see it on TV with those printing presses, those offset presses rolling. They print up a billion dollars, and they get a billion dollars in whatever denominational bill they, they have, and they deliver it to the Federal Reserve with a billion dollars worth of bonds. Okay, It's no coincidence that bond is the root word of bondage. 
All right. Anybody out there you ever take out a loan with anybody that didn't give you compound interest on one side and have collateral to back it up on the other? It's no different with bonds. They take that money and they discount it at the discount, Fed discount rate, what you hear, the one where they loan it to banks at a lower rate, and the banks turn around and loan it out to you in the form of loans where money is created at a higher rate. It's like a wholesale retail situation. But those bonds are what they keep themselves and they sell in the international market. The bond market is the underpinning of all this. The bond market is what's eroding right now. You know, as James Carville said, when I, when I die and come and get resurrected, I want to come back as the bond market. All right? Because he realized back then this was. So if we know that loans have collateral and interest, bonds have collateral and interest too. So, Roger, you know, it's interesting, it's interesting you put it in this fashion, uh, referencing bond and bondage. Uh, I learned this many, many years ago and have attempted to get my audience to understand. Think about Wall Street today in the way they talk about stocks and bonds. Now go back to the colonial period in this country, maybe uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne's scarlet letter with the gal who committed adultery and had an A, and she was put in stocks and bonds. Think very about it in those terms. That it makes a very lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. Very, very interesting on that. I'd never thought about that, but you're correct. So, if we know that the bonds have an interest rate, and that's the big problem right now, is that they got to keep the interest rate up high enough where investors will buy those bonds because that's the money that comes in that supports the government. All right. But what's the collateral? We know about the interest rate a little bit. What's the collateral for those bonds? You think it's national parks and all the land that they've taken it's and sold you. to the Chinese? It's you. Go look in the mirror, baby. You You're the it. collateral. They made you property when you volunteered into slavery, and it's your taxes that pay the investors of the bonds. You're the property. That's what your taxes are all about. Okay? Now, that's with the debt that's due. You say you worry about your kids. Hey, you better worry about your great-great-great-grandkids because they're the ones that are going to be paying this stuff, too, if we don't make some changes. And you people have got to do that. Okay? So that's a little bit of that I don't think I've ever even heard anybody say. And it's just something that I figured out along the way. So you're the collateral that backs these bonds. China's holding, what, a couple of trillion dollars of them? Japan's got a bunch of them. That's the problem right now. They're scared to death. Japan's going to have to sell the bonds to get money and to try and do something with reconstructing their, com their country and the infrastructure. So all of this is tied in worldwide. It's this worldwide matrix. I had another interesting uh, thought a number of years ago that I don't think I've ever heard anybody elaborate on. You know, Nixon closed the gold window in 71, right? Yes. Okay. And that was the same year Kissinger went over to Saudi Arabia and cut the deal with the Saudi Arabians. We'll buy all your oil. You buy our bonds and keep all your money in New York, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, don't you think that these guys took us off the gold standard and put us on the oil standard? Because it's them that's buying the bonds that back up the economy. Not gold anymore, oil. So you want to understand how important this oil thing is. The Libya, the Middle East stuff that's happening right now. All of that. we got a currency that's backed by oil, kids. 
black gold. Right on. So we're going to go into the tax system for just a little bit because we've, uh, and it's amazing to me how time flies around here. And we're going to elaborate more on this in the future because this is also complicated. But uh, I'll give you some teasers. And uh, if you want to find out, everybody, I guess, knows what a 1040 form is at this stage of their lives. But you don't know what a 1040 form is, because just like they brought the feudal system over to this country and imposed it, changing all these names and these titles, they brought the English system of taxation over to this country, and that's the taxation system that you're under. And if you want to know, you might get your pencil and paper sharp here. I'm going to tell you what it is. You can go do your own research a little bit. We're going to elaborate on this much more in the future. A 1040 form is called a statute staple. A statute staple bond. And it was the key thing from the English tax code, the collector of the revenue. And in, in England, it's called the exchequer, that they used for hundreds of years. And here's the history of it. It started in 1258 in uh, one of the Elizabeth Queen, you know, they do third year of Elizabeth whatever reign. And uh, the, the statute that started this all started in 1258. And we're going back a few years. And it was called the Statute de Mercantoribus. And the reason they passed that is because England has a unique problem. They're an island. They can't produce everything they need, and they don't have all the natural resources they need that they need to live on a day-to-day -day basis. So they depend greatly on trade. And the towns were the traders, the international traders, which are now the international bankers, used... They had a unique problem. If they came in and tried to do trade and somebody that was English didn't want to pay them, they were foreigners and they had no standing in the courts of England to go in and collect what they were owed. And if they didn't collect what they owed, they couldn't go on to the next stop in their trading route, etc., etc. And it was keeping traders evidently away from England and depriving England of things they needed. So they passed this Statute de Mercantoribus law. And what that did was it made certain sea towns, port towns in English, in England, pardon me, called statute towns. And now, what, was, what was the terminology you gave that? It sounded like Latin or Greek or something. Well, it, a lot of law comes from Latin because, you know, it's Rome. Most of our laws are based off some form of Roman civil or civil law, you know. Uh, and it was the statute de mercantoribus. It's spelled just like it sounds. Uh, I could drag it up, but I got all my programs. No, you don't need to. Clear. Okay, I'm just telling a story. We're going to elaborate on this a lot more if, if people want to hear it. I'm assuming they do. So what they did was pass the statute, and what that allowed the the the, the mayor, or the the statute merchant guy of the town, to do was, if any of these people owed the traders money, he could go and go through a process where they could literally get the guy in a legal situation where the sheriff in the town in England could then go seize anything that came through his hands, money, rents, property, etc., to satisfy the debt of the trader so the trader could go away and would come back. 
Okay? And as this developed, they were called statute towns. You could also, if you want to do some research on this, you could say statute merchant. Okay? And what happened was it morphed into the king. It was so successful that the king saw it as a way for him to take this process and use it in the collection of his taxes. And that's what happened. And for hundreds of years in England, the process was based on a statute staple. I'm not going to get into it any more than that. We'll cover it in much more depth later. It's complicated, okay? But it's exactly the system. Once again, I asked you the question the other night, Jeff. If you were going to start a whole new system and come in and take control of our country, would you go conjure up a whole new system with all the contingencies that might happen and everything you've got to think about? You're not going to do that. You're no, going to you're going to go something. back to what's proven and what's, what's tried and true. And that's exactly what they've done, and they've changed all the words and tricks as usual so nobody would figure this out, and that's what's controlling you in your tax system. All right. In fact, when, when John and Glenn were doing all the research on this stuff, they went to the intercollegiate library thing where you can put a book in and, and, it, and it'll search all of the universities and libraries in the United States, right? And there were some particular books by English authors, one named Chitty, another named Price, that they needed to find out about this process. They put the book in there. There was only two books in the entire United States in the library systems. One was at Texas A&M University and the other was at the Library of Congress. So I ask you, how the heck are our judges and our lawyers supposed to know about this process when there's only two books that cover any of it in the entire country? They're not supposed to know about it and that's by intent. Of course it is. So that's uh, uh, as much as I was going to cover there. Uh, like I said, we'll get into that more. Uh, since we're uh, on a roll here, and let's talk about the... near your time period. Too. I know, I know. Uh, we're talk uh, there's a lot of uh, press uh, these days about people leaving the country and expatriating themselves. And you have to make an appointment at the U.S. Embassy in the country you're in. Uh, used to could do it in four hours. Now it's like four or six months. Uh, it used to be the $25. Now they've raised it to 470 something, almost $500 to do it. And you sever your ties completely with the United States if you're a citizen of the United States or a resident. If you do what I did, I didn't have any problem getting a passport. I haven't had any problem getting my Social Security. I'm traveling as a true, free American with constitutional God-given rights, and nobody says boo to me. I don't want to expatriate myself. All I want to do is to be able to claim my rightful by birthright citizenship. You, several days ago, sent me a column dealing with that very issue, and I yes. will endeavor to get that column posted both at, guy, Republic, both at Republic Trading Group International and the Federal Observer later this evening. And we're just uh, going to call it a classroom uh, continuation or something of that nature. Uh, uh, you know, that guy's name, I, I want to say it's Nestor, but, uh, but, but, but it's not. But it's close. And I spoke to him on the phone before I moved because I was checking out what to do with my finances down mm -hmm. here. And I was checking out Uruguay. And I found out nobody up there knew anything about Uruguay. This guy's pretty high profile and knows a lot about this stuff. He's right there in Phoenix, Jeff, is what I was going to tell you. Uh -huh. uh, so, uh, anyway... 
that is what's happening all over the all over the world. People are expatriating in huge numbers. All right, and I could tell you a story because I was on the, my first flight down here. I met a guy from the Jamaican embassy that did this, and three years ago it was starting to bubble up. And so I met him, and the next morning, and the flight was over. We were standing in line for the bathroom, and you know everybody needs to go to the bathroom after an all-night flight, and you've been sleeping. And I started talking to him about this stuff, standing in line in the bathroom. I said, you know, there's two types of citizenship, and I go into all this stuff. Let me tell you what, that guy couldn't get away from me fast enough. He didn't even go to the bathroom, man. He went up the aisle like a scalded gazelle, and I never saw him again. Mm. So, yeah, it was an interesting story, all right? So, I don't believe myself that there's a political solution to the problems of America. I love Ron Paul. I've met him personally also, by the way, and and shaken his hand and spoke with him in Atlanta. Uh, Whether it's uh, Jesse Ventura as a running mate or whatever, you got these people up there. They can't change the country just through being a president. They got to change the system. They got to get rid of this demon system. And the biggest problem is, you know, America's not just a country. It's, a, it's, it's based on morals and ethics and principles. And as John Adams said, our constitutional is only suitable for a moral and ethical people. And I don't think there's anybody listening here that would say that, it, that America is a moral and ethical nation. And you're never, you're never going to clean up the, the country until you go back and clean up the basis. The brood mayors out there that have got ten different kids by twelve different fathers. All of the the the, uh, the trash and the degradation of morals and ethics in the country, that's what's allowed them to take control. And until you get that straightened out, you're never going to have your country back with a constitution. It doesn't make a fat rat's behind who you elect as president. And if he's a good one, they're probably going to try and kill him or kill him anyway. Well, one of the biggest arguments that both you and I run into all the time is, oh, the best way to control this is term limits. That's never going to happen because the very people that are going to have to pass that legislation are the very people that would be putting their own butts on the line to be getting put out of a job, and that ain't going to happen. So, you know, the best thing we can do is to take this type of information that we've covered, the truth, the deception, the trickery, and you've got to study it. You've got to work at it. You've got to make it yours. And I don't know what you're going to do with it. Some of your warrior types, you're going to want to go out there and file affidavits and fight these guys. If you don't want to do that... You know, go start telling people about it. We're going to post all these, all these uh, three broadcasts and more on Jeff's site. They'll be totally free. You get people to go listen to this stuff and start understanding what's happening. You educate them, all right? So you can do that because people are always saying, well, I'm only one person. What can I do? I'm only one person. Look what I'm doing, all right? Look what I've gone through to get to the point where I'm doing this and delivering this information to you because I want to make a difference. Just like when I talked to Jeff a couple of weeks ago and we started talking about this and he said, Roger, I'm ready to make a difference. And I said, you get me on, baby. We're going we're gonna to cluster flock these people with black swans. Okay? <laughs> so this is important. If you don't tell people, what else can you do? Start writing letters. Write the State Department. Say, listen, I just was going to apply for a passport, and I was reading, and I was reading it, and I see there's two distinct uh, political statuses or types of citizens here. Could you tell me, with some specificity, exactly what they are, what their legal rights and duties are, and how they're differentiated? What if the State Department got twenty or thirty thousand letters like that? You think they'd start getting nervous? 
Oh, yeah. Yeah, man. So I don't care what you do. Do something. Well, what I would like to do is next time we're together, which is going to be next week if you're uh, so up for it, and we'll uh, we'll figure out which day it's going to be, but I'd like to use my own little situation as kind of a test because I'm not the only one in this boat. Two years ago, maybe three years ago, I had to go out and get a passport. Well, I wasn't thinking, just like the average idiot out there. And what I want to talk to you about, it won't take too long, is exactly how I can reverse that or automate Well, you go back and you go back and get another original application, and you, if you want to file this affidavit and you want to do this, and it ain't easy, all right? It looks easy, and it is easy to do, but it's the consequences afterwards that get a Absolutely. little bit free. You know, it's like the guy over in India that's walking off on those hot coals, okay? Uh, it, it, you just send that in and reapply. All right, and there's some tricks in in uh, applying for a passport. We'll cover it more in depth if you want to do that one night on a program. And whether you ever even leave the country or not, it's good for identification inside the country too. So if you want to claim this status and you want to make that claim, you got a passport. Now it doesn't look any different from any of the other ones, but believe me, they kept my affidavit when they sent the passport back. They sent my birth certificate back. They didn't send the affidavit back. Interesting. All right. So there's a lot of things we can expand on and we can talk about, but, but we're getting close to the end of our third hour here, and this is real important to me. Okay. Uh, and I'm going to read. I'm going to read from the Bible. I, I choose to use the Farrar Fenton Bible. A lot of people don't know who that is. He was an Englishman, a very successful businessman in several different areas. And when he was at Oxford in the 1850s, he came to the conclusion that England was losing its way because they were reading the King James Bible and that that was old, anti antiquated language and most people couldn't understand it and relate to it. So he made this Bible his life's work. And he went back and took the original Greek and Hebrew and he translated it. It took him 55 years or more. And every, in fact, every time he'd come to a word and he didn't know what it was, he would write. Now, they didn't have email back then. He'd write a letter to the people around the world that were experts in that language, and he wouldn't move forward in his translation until he had a consensus opinion on the correct translation of that word. And it reads in modern English. It's a fantastic Bible. So I'm going to read to you from Revelation 18. After this, I saw another angel descending from the heaven, possessing great authority, and the earth was illuminated with his majesty. And with a voice of strength he proclaimed, Babylon the great has fallen, has fallen, and now has become a refuge of demons, and a haunt for every malign spirit, and a hold on every filthy and hateful bird." because every nation has been made drunk by her with the fury of her fornication. And the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth have been enriched by the power of her luxury. Then I heard another voice from the heavens saying, Come out of her, my people, that you may not be partners with her sins, and that you may not become re recipients of her plagues. For her sins are piled up as high as heaven, and God has remembered her wickedness. Repay to her what she has given, and redouble it in accordance with her doings. The cup which she has poisoned, poison it double with her. 
and she has glorified herself and luxuriated. Give her in the same way torment and anguish, because in her heart she says, I sit a queen, I'm not a widow, and I shall never see suffering. Because of this, in a single hour, her plagues have come, death, anguish, and famine, to be burnt in fire, because God her judge is mighty. And the kings of the earth who committed fornication and luxuriated with her shall weep and wail over her, when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar in fear of her torment. She shall cry, Alas, alas, the great city of Babylon, the mighty city, how has your judgment come in a single hour? The merchants of the earth shall weep and grieve for her because of their cargo. None buys any more. Their cargo of gold and of silver and of jewels and of pearls and cotton and purple and silk and scarlet and all sweet wood and ivory toys and all products of costly wood and of brass and of iron and of marble and of cinnamon and of cloves and scents and myrrh and incense and wine and oil and fine flowers flour and wheat, and cattle and sheep, and horses and carriages, and bodies and souls of men. We're out of time. Roger, thank you. We'll get coordinated. We'll be back next week. Apropos, we're closing with the Beatles. Ow! Man. We'll see everybody. Take care. See, see you, bro. Muchas gracias. You're listening to this program live on the 21st day of April. 2011, right here on RBN, Republic Broadcast Network. Now, having said all that, we have fought, my friends, in battles together. Uh, in some instances, some of us have fought side by side, others have uh, fought face to face. The end result is we all have a common enemy. And that enemy is not necessarily, not that I'm supporting the individual you understand, not necessarily the individual who resides in the White House at any given point in time. That individual is merely nothing more than the tool of the handlers. Now, over the past several weeks, we've been going through a series of technical difficulties which have made this particular program nearly impossible to conduct. I am proud to say that after an exceedingly lengthy delay and a lot of hungry, thirsty listeners out there who are saying, when's he coming back? When's he coming back? Well, in the words of the movie, he's back. Roger Sales, welcome back to Life, Liberty, and all that jazz. Man, thanks, Jeff. I can't tell you how glad I am to be back. It's been 11 days that I've been offline here and having to go to a cyber cafe they call Locatorios down here. And the reason they call them Loco is because they make you crazy being in them. Uh, <laughs> no Skype. I can't get Skype. Uh, you're uh, typing on Spanish keyboards. All the keys are in different places. All the programs are in Spanish. And it's been, uh, you know, it's been quite an experience, but uh, we've got everything straight, and, and here we are. He's back is right. So, thanks for the intro. Uh, as always, I want to start this with a prayer, though, and I'd like us all collectively to pray, because when we pray together, we're heard better. And I'd like to say, uh, Heavenly Father, I thank you for this opportunity to talk to your people, and that you would give me the thoughts that I can manifest into words that would fall on the ears of your people, tickle their ears, and reignite that flame of freedom that you've placed in their breasts. Uh, and, and, and no matter how they choose to go forward with what we learn, and what you 
realize and I pray that you'd put over a mantle of protection over them as they go forward in whichever path they choose. Uh, amen. So we'll get that out of the way. Um, I guess, Jeff, that you've rerun those programs uh, a, a few times here in the last week and a half or so. Yes, we have. Obviously, as many of the audience knows, I've been kind of drifting in and out of illness and and allow me to take about 15 seconds here to inform everybody that my problem turned out not to be food poisoning. The idiot in the emergency room did not listen to a word I say and just threw a bunch of meds at me. But it did turn out that I had a urinary tract infection, relatively rare for a male to get it. Um, the interesting thing is the doctor was such an idiot, Roger, he gave me pills that were made for a woman. Now, I'm not a, I'm not swishy in any stretch of the imagination, as you well know. <laughs> so, let's get it on. We're here. We're gonna, okay, man. We're gonna be, man. Well, what I'd like to do is, first of all, start with some sort of a recap, because I, I want to tell the people listening and the, that I know this is complicated information. Okay, uh, It went way over my head when I first heard it 18 years ago. I just knew that there was some truth there, and that's why I just lit onto it. It was the first time. I'd known since the 60s that something was wrong, and I never knew what it was. And it's the first time I had a thread that I could follow, and I was obsessed with it 18 and a half years ago, and I'm obsessed with it tonight. Okay? And in all those years, that obsession hadn't changed one single bit. hadn't subsided. It hadn't diminished. It's only gotten greater. So you've hopefully had a chance to listen to those programs more than once, and uh, hopefully you've had some time to think on the concepts we went over. And what I wanted to try and do is at least go back and re-simplify it uh, and recover it. And maybe this illustration will help you. And since this is radio, the great meeting of radio, and each one of us perceives what we hear in our own individual mind's eye, let's collectively look, if you'll kind of look up in the front of your forehead there, and we're going to draw two columns, and one's on the left side and one's on the right side. And at the, at the top, we're going to put God over on the left, and over on the right, we're going to put the federal government, because they think they're God. They act like God. Okay? So under God in the original Constitution, where, according to Thomas Jefferson, we get our rights uh, from the Creator, uh, that you come down in the original way the country was drawn up, and you were a state citizen first, and as Justice Story said, a state citizen was ipso facto by the mere fact that he was a state citizen. He was the uh, citizen of the United States. So on that left-hand column, you've got God, state citizen, and federal or United States citizen. And we talked about the concept of jurisdiction, which is allegiance for protection, protection for allegiance. That was spelled out in the Wong Kim Ark case. So if you get your protection from God as a state citizen under the original Constitution, you, you owe your allegiance to God. And that's where the jurisdiction is. Now, what they did was they changed that. And we'll go over on that right-hand column where you got the federal government, and they took these former black slaves that in the law were things, and they gave them a political and a civil status. And they made them citizens of the United States first and citizens of the state second. And like it says in the, in the slaughterhouse cases, to be a state 
state citizen, there was one important element. They had to reside in the state to be a state citizen. So now you've got the federal government, you've got a citizen of the United States, and you've got a state citizen who is a resident underneath that. Once again, to our allegiance, allegiance for protection, protection for allegiance, that's jurisdiction, those, that new form of citizenship, they get their protection from the federal government, and therefore they owe their allegiance to the federal government. And that's, it really, honestly, is as simple as that, okay? And that's not complicated to understand. All that's, what's complicated for people is the fact that most people aren't really tuned into law stuff, and you've had some basic tenets of law that go all the way back to Rome. They're not difficult. Uh, but you're dealing with the knots that have been tied in your mind by these people with very, very sophisticated Pavlovian, Skinner, Jean, all of these sophisticated psychological techniques that go back a hundred more years. And that's what they've used on you through the education process, through the television, through everything. That's, that's a lot of the reasons lawyers can't see this is because they're taught in law school to think inside the box. And you've got to think outside the box to really comprehend this. And when you get it, it's simple, okay? And, and, and if it's not simple for you, I'm going to say what we talked about the other night when that guy wrote in and said, quit talking so fast. Listen, this is all personal responsibility. You're the one that's got to make this information yours. If you want to have any semblance of freedom, whether you move on this stuff with the paperwork, no matter what you do with it, you've got to make this information yours. If you only go talk to your neighbors and show them this stuff, or your friends, you're doing something. So if you ask what can one person do, you can start learning this truth, and it's absolute ironclad truth. And you can carry it, and you can tell people, or you can write letters to the State Department or, and ask them about these two different citizenships that they list four or five times in the passport application. You know, early on in this process... We, uh, one of the guys in our, that was a, a, a student of John and Glenn's, wrote to the Nebraska Attorney General, and he said, "I'm, a, you know, born in Nebraska, and I'd like some sort of notification or, or, or certification that I'm a, a Nebraska citizen." And they sent this guy back a real nice, beautiful, gold embossed letter, and declared that so and so was a citizen of the state of Nebraska, and so all of us started writing our states. Well, I wrote Florida's Attorney General, and I was asking him for something similar, and. They wrote back and they had a, a telling, telling sentence in there that I've never forgotten. And it said, all matters of citizenship are handled by the Department of State. Okay? So use that. Write the legal department at the State Department. Ask them. Include a copy of the, of the, uh, of the passport application. Or take those quotes out of there and say, what do these mean? Give me some legal specifics on rights and duties of these two apparently mutually exclusive statuses. So, you know, there's always something you can do. Call some radio shows. Get me on some other radio shows. Start start telling people about this, because the only way that this is going to change is if the people get educated. And the only way that's going to happen, I've done my part. I'll continue to do my part. I absolutely promise you. This is my obsession, okay? Uh, but you've got to do something, too. And the very first thing you've got to do is do a little bit of study. And you've got to do what a lot of people don't do anything anymore of in, the, in these days, and that's think. You've got to retrain yourself 
to think. Okay, and, and I'll tell you the importance of this. If you want to go back and reiterate it a little bit, this is Satan's deepest, darkest secret. He had to reach way down in his bag of tricks, folks, to pull out something that would take the only the second nation in the history of the world that had God-given rights and turn them into a bunch of happy slaves that don't even understand their slaves. It goes back to the quote from Goethe. You know, Goethe wrote Faust. He was a German German writer. And he said, and this is, this is a really profound quote, and he said, there are none so helplessly enslaved as those who falsely believe they're free. It's a big problem in this nation. I'm afraid around the world. Too many people believe they're free, and they don't understand the freedom factor. Yeah, they have no idea, and that's what this does. You see, it gives you an absolute basis of truth and fact, and it exposes these people to the absolute core, man. This is their deepest, darkest secret, and we're going to talk about that a little bit later. All of the tricks that they pull are using this same technique or these same techniques. You know, I think I told you in one of the earlier shows that the, the one rule of thumb I've used for years, and it's never been wrong one time, is no matter what they tell you, you look 180 degrees in the opposite direction, and that's where you're going to find the truth, man. And it's always there, because that's the knot tying technique that they're using to totally make you, uh, uh, you know, tied up in knots in your mind. Yeah, there's a. I, I should I should make the announcement, Jeff. You know, I I'm, I've used this last 11 days to finish my book. I've never written a book before. I've never considered myself to be much of a writer. Okay, but I started this back in 2005 after 9/11 was exposed. I thought maybe at that point the people would be ready to listen. And one of the things is I've gone back and re-edited it four or five times in the last 11 days when I didn't have an internet. It actually was very productive for me. <laughs> um, I, I, I had the occasion several times to be around and really spend a couple of chunks of time with General Benton Parton. Uh, many of you will know who he was. He came to the forefront after the uh, Murrah building. He's the expert's expert on munitions. And Benton Parton's got a great story in the fact that he was given the charge of, of founding the Air Force uh, 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 Weapon Systems Division. And it wasn't even a division. They said, go start this. And he said, well, all right, well, the first thing I need to do, because the, the, the mandate of that division is to look 25 to 50 years in the future and, and kind of devise the kind of weapon systems that they're going to need to fight. And he said, well, heck, the first thing I had to do is figure out who we were fighting. And so he said communism was the big uh, opponent. And so I, he said I became an ardent, uh, an ardent student of communism. And in all of this study, he, he said one thing that really, really surprised me and it amazed me. And I thought about it, and I think it explains a lot of things. He said, you know, when we were studying Freud, they were studying Pavlov. Okay? And he said, everybody knows about Pavlov's conditioned response with the dog, where they rang the bell and, and, and it fed the dog, and eventually they could ring the bell and the dog would salivate without the food, right? Well, that was only the first stage of Pavlov's experiment. And he said, nobody knows about the other two stages. I don't know where he got the information. And the second stage was they took the same dog in the same room, and they devised a conditioned response where they'd turn on the light and they'd beat him with a stick. And there was a board parallel to the floor over in the corner that that dog could dive under and not get beat with a stick. So they conditioned him to turn it on the light and beat him with a stick. That was the second phase. 
The third phase was they turned on the light and they rang the bell at the same time. So my question to you is what do you think the dog did? I don't know. The dog stood in the middle of the room and shook. And psychologists call that a catatonic state. And you want to want you want afraid it was about to happen all over again. Well, he didn't know what was going to happen, see? And that's exactly what I believe is the state of the American people right now. Why nobody does anything? Because they've got you with lies, disinformation, misinformation, stuff coming from every direction, and you don't know which way to turn or what to do, so you stand there and shake in a catatonic state. Makes sense. Okay? That's my own interpretation. You interpret it how you like. Okay? So, but I thought that it made a lot of sense, all right? So uh, I wanted to get into some other stuff tonight, so we've talked about this. Uh, this is in the book. By the way, we're going to offer that book for sale. I don't know that we've got a price point on it yet. And the title of it is Government by the Treachery and Deception of Words. Uh, and I, I had an occasion before I left the United States when I was I had done all this and I was trying to live like a free man and the news kept getting tighter and tighter after 9-11 and, and all of the regulations from the Patriot Act were being enforced. And uh, uh, so I had, a, 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 in my mind, preparatory thinking of if I ever got confronted with this, how I was going to handle it. And I, fortunately, I never had to do that, but I wanted to tell the people really how simple this should be. I don't know that it would work like this. I know it works like this at administrative agencies. I don't know about a courtroom setting. But if you've got that properly executed, filed, certified affidavit, and you get charged with some regulation or some statute, and you walk into court, and you've got that affidavit that's never been rebutted. Mine's never been rebutted in almost 20 years. All right, And you give that to the judge, and you say, Sir, this is a properly executed and unrebutted affidavit. I'm sure you understand that a person legally is an entity to whom the law ascribes rights and duties. The statute or regulation I'm charged with is written for citizens of the United States and residents. And this affidavit, unrebutted, plainly states that I'm neither of those. Since I receive no rights from the 14th Amendment, hmm. I owe no correlative duties because rights and duties are correlative. Therefore, this statute or regulation does not apply to me. Have a nice day. Now, if you know that information cold, you can't, you can't memorize that and go in and recite it. You've got to understand this information and make it yours. And that's why I stress that so much to people. Because it's not just no, it's a whole lifestyle. This information changes your literal life because it changes your perspective and it changes the way you think. Is that music I hear? Yeah, it is. Music's coming in. When we come back in, I want to add a little comment to that, and uh, it's something I've learned in doing this broadcast these last 16 years. Stay with us. Roger Sales will rejoin us in just a few moments. Roger Sales, let's pick up where we left off, man, because this gets ever more fascinating each time you're on it. Well, it raises more questions than it answers, and that's, it, you know what, that's good. It, it always is, and in the words of Clint Eastwood make my day man yeah. um, I was going to say one thing that John used to really hammer on us and it's something to ponder on and that is he said if we can ever free the blacks we can free us all yeah. because it's the blacks that have been used to enslave all of us 
Okay, and they've got the welfare mentality in people's minds, and you got to get rid of that stuff, man. Plain and simple. Uh, I wanted to touch on mis and disinformation because everything I've told you is established legal concepts. It goes back to Rome. You can easily go research them and check them. You can go read the slaughterhouse cases. You can go read U.S. versus Wong Kim Ark. You can see that that uh, uh, statement in the dissenting opinion by Chief Justice. Uh, 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 I, I can't think of his name right now. Uh, that wrote the dissenting opinion there, uh, uh, saying that we were under the feudal system and brought it into this country for the first time since England was being relieved of its inconvenience. Uh, and I hear, and I listen to the radio a lot, uh, and uh, even down here in Argentina, and, and I hear some of these guys talking and hawking their books and stuff. And this isn't an ad hominem attack, okay, but I want to bring this out just as as a perfect illustration, there's a guy with a book out there, two guys with a book. They're hawking. I've heard them on almost every major show. And I heard this guy say one day that you're under admiralty law because you were gestated for nine months in your mother's womb in a water sack. And when that water sack broke, you were brought into the world down a canal. And that's why when you came into the world, you're under admiralty law. And I'm going to tell you, I turned off the radio, and I'll never listen to another thing that guy has to say. Mm. The other thing, because, I mean, that's just, if you if you have any tendency to believe that, what I want you to do is run down to your nearest DVD store and go rent the longest playing DVD you can find to Star Trek, and you and Captain Kirk and Bones and Spock can go out there in Admiralty Lawland, all right, and spend as much time as you want out there. Because you're going to be right there with Gene Roddenberry, because it's science fiction. Okay? The other theory that this guy's putting out is that they own you because you're using their currency. Now, it doesn't take much of one step of logic to say the U.S. currency is the world's reserve currency. Why isn't the IRS, OSHA, EPA, BATF, and all these other administrative agencies? The, Argentina's got the second most amount of, of uh, uh, Federal Reserve notes in the world, I'm told. Why aren't they down here? Why aren't they over in Europe? Why aren't they over in China? China's got a huge deficit, uh, a surplus of that stuff over there. Why aren't they over there enforcing these regulations if that's how they own you and that's how they're taking jurisdiction of you? Mm -hmm. in, in, in law, that's called a non sequitur, and that means that that does not follow. Because that line of logic, man, with $5, you can't even get a cup of Starbucks coffee with that one, all right? So, uh, I mean, it's just use your brains, people. These people have a legal peg they're hanging their hat on. And I poured my heart out three programs in a row. I gave you all of the references. I gave you all of the legal sites you can go read and check for yourself. You don't have to believe me. In fact, I used to tell people, don't believe me. You go look it up because that's the only way you're going to make the information yours. Yeah, exactly. Well, that's pretty much what I've challenged people for years. You've heard it. Don't listen to a damn thing I say. Take the basics of it and go do your own homework. I wanted to make a couple other points here that I think are really important for the way people think. And that is they trick us with generalizations while they're using real specific information like we covered in those three programs what's a resident where does that come from where does that jurisdiction what legal theory is backing that up okay and and we go in and use these real generalizations let me give you an example how many times have you heard say the government this the government that well they're not the government we're the government 
We elect leaders to go up there and represent us. They appoint agents. They are agents of government. And as agents of government, they've got specific duties that they can that they have to perform, and they sign stuff to, that spells out that. And when they act outside of those duties, they're personally liable in lawsuits. People have won a lot of money from these people when they get outside of their jurisdictions and try and enforce these regulations. So you've got to come back and start thinking with specificity. Okay, you can't get trapped in generalizations. I think that's a real important point. Let me tell you something else that I picked up from Pastor Peters, if this is going to help you out. These are these little tidbits that I've spent years listening to radio and picked up. He said something one night that hit me so hard I've never forgotten it. Everybody's scared of the IRS, right? Big, intimidating IRS are going to come take your stuff, right? Let me tell you what he said that night. He said, you serve the one you fear. Now, you ponder that for a while, okay? Who are you serving? Who do you fear? That's interesting. Let's go back and get another biblical quote here. Woe to you lawyers, for you've hidden the keys of knowledge from the people. Wow. You don't think that stuff I told you for three hours is hiding the keys of knowledge? Hell, even the lawyers don't know this stuff. I put this presentation in front of 11 of them personally. Not one of them ever came back and disputed a single fact. Every one of them went back and researched it. None of them had ever been exposed to it in all of their law school or their legal practice. So I want to read another thing that I committed to memory years ago. My... My dear friend in Atlanta, Patrick Henry, used to dress up in old colonial outfits and go to all our meetings. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and he had a big ostrich plume on a three-point hat, and he'd go up to all the women and he'd go, I don't know about you, but my pantyhose are killing me. <laughs> <laughs> so, and it was because of him that I, that I memorized this quote. And he said, this is from the Declaration of Independence. This is one of the complaints against the king. He has erected multitudes of offices and sent hither swarms of officers to harass us and eat out our substance. And that to me was one of the most profound accusations in the Declaration. And as I've said to people for so many years, why and how is it any different in this nation today? It isn't, and that's my point. He has erected multitudes of offices, all of these administrative agencies. He's sent hither swarms of officers. They're everywhere, and now they're arming all of them to harass us and eat out our substance. I think Thomas Jefferson's one of the most brilliant minds the country's ever produced, personal opinion. I want to read you some other wisdom from history here, all right? And then I'm going to quiz you, Jeff, because you're the guy that's on with me. (laughs) All right, we'll try it. Okay. Power and law are not synonymous. In truth, they're frequently in opposition and irreconcilable. There's a God's law from which equitable laws of man emerge and by which men must live if they're not to die in oppression, chaos, and despair. 
Divorced from God's eternal and immutable law, established before the founding of the sons, man's power is evil, no matter how the noble words with which it is employed or the motives urged when enforcing it. Men of good will... Mindful, therefore, of the law and laid down by God, will oppose governments whose rule is by men. And if they wish to survive as a nation, they will destroy the government which attempts to adjudicate by the whim of venal judges. Now, I'm going to ask you, who do you think said that, and when do you think it was? Oh, man. Was that pretty truthful? Well, absolutely. And, 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 and as I sit there listening to the words, and you talk about venal judges, and we talk about powers and laws, and, and the problem is people in this nation refer to us as a nation of laws. Well, there's the laws there, but unfortunately we're being controlled by the powers. Well, they are laws. They're, the law. slave, they're slave laws that are exactly. controlling you. They just didn't tell you there was this other set. They just, they like to live by them, though. Well, you'll never guess it, so I'll tell you, it's probably one of the greatest spokesmen in the history of the world. Statesman, excuse me, is the word I want. His name was, that's exactly correct. And those uh, words, I don't know yes. exactly when they were written, but he lived, for those of you who are not familiar with Cicero, he lived from 106 to 43 B.C. See, it all you don't, gelled instantly when you said statesman, because... I, I don't consider any of our politicians today to be statesmen. Well, Ron Paul probably is, and there's been a couple along the way. Wright Patman was another one. Voorhees, Jerry Voorhees from California, who tried to get rid of the Federal Reserve. By the way, this young upstart uh, uh, politician got financed by the Rockefellers that defeated Jerry Voorhees. You know what his name was? Richard, Richard Milhouse Nixon, correct. Okay. So, so that was one Cicero. Let's jump forward a few, few hundred years. If man, through fear, fraud, or mistake, should in terms renounce or give up any natural right, the eternal law of reason and the grand end of society would absolutely vacate such renunciation. The right to freedom, being the gift of God, is not in the power of man to alienate this gift and voluntarily become a slave. They named a beer after that guy. His name's Samuel Adams. Uh, you know, the, the words become so powerful, I, uh, no matter who they come from. I, but where, where are the people that speak this way today? Well, they're They've been in public school, man. They don't know how to do this. Yeah, that's it. Uh, okay, here's another one. This one's very, very... All these quotes, by the way, are in this book, all right? Uh, we have stricken the shackles from four million human beings, parentheses, black slaves, that's my addition, and brought all laborers to a common level, not so much by the elevation of former slaves as by practically reducing the whole working population, white and black, to a condition of serfdom. While boasting of our noble deeds... We are careful to conceal the ugly fact that by our iniquitous money system, we have nationalized a system of oppression which, though more refined, is no less more cruel than the old system of chattel slavery. That was the Go West young man guy, Horace Greeley. Horace Greeley. Hmm? 
Yeah, so these are, these are powerful, yeah. man. They're very powerful, okay? Let me give you another one. This one was done at the end of of century before last by a congressman. The imposition of the income tax will corrupt the people. It will bring in its train the spy and the informer. It will necessitate a storm, a swarm, excuse me, of officials with inquisitorial powers. It will be a step towards centralization. It breaks another canon of taxation in that it is expensive in its collection and cannot be fairly imposed. And finally, it is contrary to the traditions and the principles of Republican government. That was U.S. Representative Robert Adams. I'm not sure where he was from, but that statement was uttered on January 26 of 1894. You think this guy had any foresight? Yeah, it's uh, amazing. Um, I, I think of the words of, of, you know, certainly the ones that were most well known by people like Patrick Henry, but they were somewhat more generic. I think of the words of Charles Lindbergh Sr., who you referenced earlier in the program tonight. Uh, you know, everybody thinks about Sonny Boy because he flew, you know, from New York to Paris, etc., etc. His father was the brilliant mind in that package. No question. Uh, and boy, some of his speeches are powerful uh, if you ever read them. He fought these guys tooth and toenail every, every minute of his, of his adult life. Okay. Let me read you a little, a little limerick here. And I don't know who wrote it. Okay. But I've always liked it. It stuck with me. It says, No man escapes when freedom fails. The best men rot in filthy jails. And those that cried, Appease, appease, are hanged by those they tried to please. <laughs> I've heard that somewhere, and I don't know where. It's powerful stuff. Okay, yeah. now I'm going to read you something else from the book here. This is going back to Rome. This is powerful, too. Okay? The Roman law. The first 200 years of Rome, it was a republic. It had a system of law known as the jus, that's J-U-S, civil, C-I-V-I-L-E. Just means law. Civil means citizen, or the law of the citizen. Foreigners had no standing in the courts of the jus civil. After 200 years, the Senate passed a statute that created another system of law for the foreigners known as the Jus Gensum. That's spelled G-E-N-T-I-U-M, but it's pronounced Gensum, at least according to John. That's the Jus law, Gensum, of the foreigner. The law was presided over by the praetor, all the laws in Rome. He sat for one year only. He was appointed. And then a different praetor was appointed in his place. The presiding praetor would publicly state which laws that he would enforce during his tenure. As a general rule, he would adopt the law of the previous praetor. But usually, they would make slight changes. Over several hundred years, however, these changes combined to become very substantial. To contract under the just civil, the law of the citizen, it was a very formal process. And if all the formality was not strictly adhered to, there would be no legal contract, and that is, it wouldn't be legally enforceable. The main bodies of foreigners in Rome were foreign merchants. 
Merchants did not have standing in the court of the just Seville, and they were not tied to these formalities. They had, by their customs, provided a more abbreviated, easier, and speedier way of establishing and enforcing contract. It's called the law merchant, by the way. The law merchant we call today the Uniform Commercial Code. As the, as the citizens of Rome saw the quick and easy way that the foreign merchants were able to contract and avail them health, themselves of self-help, the praetor, under pressure from Rome's citizens, adopted more and more of these ways of contracting in his court of the foreigners, the Justinsum. Under the legal fiction that citizens of Rome were foreign merchants, the citizens saw how easy it was for the foreign merchants to contract, and they were desirous to avail themselves of the merchant's legal way of contracting. And on that legal fiction that a citizen of Rome was a foreign merchant, they, the citizens, were able to utilize the merchant's law. In only 200 years after its adoption, there was no just Seville. Only the just Zinsum was operative, and the citizen had none of the rights that he had as a citizen under the just Seville. He was just another merchant bound by the law of the foreigner. Today, it's totally encompassed in the law we call the Uniform Commercial Code. So do you see how it changed? Do you understand how that relates analogously to the United States? 200 years. We had God's law and constitutionally protected rights. And through this trick of this citizenship change, they've brought the Uniform Commercial Code right in here, and that's what's governing you. The law merchant. The law of merchants that goes back thousands of years to the Phoenicians and even before. And you want to know how you know it's the Uniform Commercial Code? Let me tell this to some of these jokers out there. Because they have to use the Uniform Commercial Code because that's the body of law that handles negotiable paper. And that's the whole basis of the financial system. Why wouldn't they use the same body of law for the financial system where they're raping the whole world that they're using to enslave you? It would make sense because it all serves the same purpose. Let me read you another quote here. This comes back to you learning this information and making it yours. Okay? I've worked for 18 and a half years, total dedication. I'm a lucky man tonight because I get to realize my life's main goal by teaching you people. And I dare say there's very few men that ever get to do that in their lifetime. I dare say there's very few men that even have or know what the hell their life's goal is. So I get warm fuzzies from doing this, man. Okay? Nothing in the world can take the place of persistence. Freedom takes persistence. Talent will not. Nothing is more common than unsuccessful men with talent. Genius will not. Unrewarded genius is almost a proverb. Education alone will not. The world is full of educated derelicts. Persistence and determination alone are omnipotent. Amazing stuff. That, that's anonymous, by the way. 
Now, it wasn't when, spoken by you. Well, I, it it's, was. It's, you know, I don't know if you have time, and I'm not sure if we have time. I received a question that I certainly will forward over to you later tonight. Um, uh, it is from a listener. And if you're not uh, in a position to answer this at the present time or if we don't have enough time, uh, he says, Jeff, could you ask Roger, doesn't a person need a ruling one way or the other instead of just filing an affidavit with the court clerk? Does it not just set there as an open docket? I mean, to me, it seems like you could register just about anything in court, but to have a ruling, there has to be a hearing and a decision or ruling declared by the judge. Is is this, does this fit into what we're talking about? Well, does it, it does. But, but first of all, you're not going to get any judges to rule on this. But you got to have before you're going to go in and try and get some sort of a ruling. You got to have some sort of a basis. And mm -hmm. the reason you put that affidavit in an affidavit form is it's the absolute highest form of truth in law. An unrebutted affidavit bypasses the rules of evidence. Okay, they can't keep it out of evidence if it's executed properly and it's filed. And it's like that question I asked you the other night, Jeff. Why do you file it in the property records where the hell does the IRS file a lien right right you're their property you got to go in and make a public declaration and you do that by making it open and notorious and if nobody goes and reads the property law books that's not your problem you've got it there exactly and you go to the clerk of the court and you get it certified and then you start sticking it under people's nose, and you go, this is an affidavit. Can you rebut it with an affidavit properly executed, properly sworn, that rebuts this under penalties of perjury? And if they can't, yours stands. Very interesting. Okay. Well, now, there's going to be more. I'm going to forward some emails over to you tonight. And uh, obviously, we've got a number of people asking if you have a website. The answer is no. Roger, I do not. And uh, but all this information that we're sharing with you certainly can be picked up through the archives here at RBN. Uh, also, we will be making the book available very quick, very soon. Um, I it, it, it is, it is got, finished. It is I don't finished. recall if you got to do it or not. You have another upcoming appearance. Um, well, uh, one of the really nice, thank you for leading into that, one of the really nice things that's happened is I've got a very dear friend down here in Argentina that I've crossed paths with. His name's Adrian Salbucci, and a number of you have seen some. He's been very high profile the last year and a half or so, and Adrian heard these broadcasts, and he called me the other day when I didn't have Skype. He called me on a phone, which is expensive down here, and uh, he has asked me to be a co-host with him. He's been offered a show on another network, America and Freedom Network, and on Friday night, the 29th, we're going to start from, I believe, 10 o'clock to midnight uh, on Friday nights, and so Adrian and I are going to get in there and kick it around, and the guy amazes me, he's got, when it comes to geopolitical stuff and history, he, he pulls out stuff that amazes me, and I, we've had many long talks uh, on the phone mostly, we've met once, and uh, I'll tell you, we're kindred spirits here. Uh, let me close, because I know we're getting close to it, and I yeah. want to say that, you know, being off... Being off for 11 days, it brought us to this broadcast this night on this very special weekend. And I've told people for years, you know, it's no coincidence that Jesus was crucified three days after he kicked the, the money changers out of the temple. 
Okay, and it's the same bunch doing the same damn thing today, just much more sophisticated. So we're going to kick them out of the temple, or their temple's going to collapse on them on their own arrogance and, and, and hubris. Uh, and the question is, when we kick the money changers out of the temple this time, just who's going to get crucified? And yeah. that's the question I want to end on, and that's the question I want you to think about and ponder. Excellent. Excellent. We do reach the end of our time. Hey, man, I you know I know we're talking about bringing you back again. We're going to open up phone lines next time and go for some Q and A's with the audience. Uh, but but you know that's all well and good if one one good friend of ours back in uh, from Brooklyn doesn't decide to mo- monopolize the entire hour. <laughs> let, me, let me let me end this fireside chat. Piped up music. Pot it down just a minute. And something I heard from Eleanor Roosevelt, and I didn't particularly like her, but I love this statement. She said, "Small minds talk about people. Medium minds talk about events, and large minds talk about concepts. Which one do you want to be?" That's it. Roger Sales, as always. Thanks. I'll talk to you a little later, brother. Ladies and gentlemen, thanks for sharing your valuable time with us tonight. Uh, Lord willing, we'll be back again with you tomorrow night here on Life, Liberty, and all that jazz. And until that time, without apology, I am Jeffrey Bennett.